Beloved listeners, welcome to Square Waves FM episode number 28. I am your host as usual, Brian, and uh, with me today I have a uh, returning guest. Please introduce yourself, lady. Lady, I see. You're some lady. <laughs> hey, Squares, I'm Bianca. I'm back again in case you haven't had enough of me yet. <laughs> oh, Squares. See, this is a point of contention or that I'm not entirely... Sure about. Some people call the hosts of Square FM Squares and uh, in many podcasts like uh, Joe Mastroni's Upper Memory Block podcast, uh, the listeners are referred to as blockers. So what the hell? Why don't we all just consider ourselves to be squares? Mm-hmm. Um, we had a lovely comment from uh, Anatoly in our <laughs> after our last show saying that uh, he particularly enjoyed uh, Chris Olson podcasting from the lovely balcony in San Juan, uh, Puerto Rico, and hearing all the cool birds chirping and the planes flying and all the background noises and stuff. So rather than sequester ourselves to our bedroom, as we usually do when we record the podcast, or at least I do, um, uh, if uh, yeah, at least I do, um, today we're going to do it from our living room with our three parrots. We have two budgies. Who are more than happy to share their thoughts with the... You guys, right now, they've yeah. been chirping the background. They should hopefully not be too loud. Yeah, well, we'll see how it goes, won't we? Mm-hmm. So you may hear some flapping and chirping and stuff, and perhaps some rattling of bookshelves as we <laughs> knock them over, trying to shut up the damn little brats. So we're looking forward to taking you on this journey with us. Mm-hmm. So yay! And I forget whether I mentioned it or not, but as always, it's fantastic to have all of you listening, and it's a real pleasure to have any audience whatsoever, but especially you as my audience, as our audience. I'm very grateful for that. So, um, before we get into our usual time-wasting blathering and such, I wanted to ask Bianca, did you even say your name, or did you just... Yeah, I said my name after I gave you a dirty look for calling me lady. You are a lady. What do you want? To be addressed with respect and dignity. Okay, toots. <sighs> so, uh, just before we recorded the podcast, Bianca was uh, partaking and participating in a hobby that she has that she has been uh, 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 piddling around with and participating actively in and kind of climbing the ranks in for many years now. I guess about a decade or so now at least, huh? Uh, more than a decade, actually. Than a decade. I, I joined at the end of 2002. Oh, so I was hoping you could tell the listeners a little bit about it. A lot of our listeners and the guests on the podcast have been involved in game development, game design, uh, uh, testing, and a lot of other uh, uh, game-related stuff. So mm-hmm. uh, I'd love for you to tell our listeners how uh, what your participation is in that scene. Well, ours, my participation is more in the website area. I'm actually an active game moderator on Nation States. For those of you who are wondering, you can uh, it's, a, it's an online political game. You can find at uh, nationstates.net. It was the brainchild of Max Berry, originally designed as a promotional tool for one of his earlier publications, Jennifer Government. Essentially, the site is, uh, is, a nation create, is a nation simulator. You don't get a lot of stuff, but you still get enough that you get 
<laughs> I see. <laughs> you get. <laughs> you don't get a lot of the same things that you might get in something like Civilization or Age of Empires, but you do get quite a bit. Well, it's, it's kind of a model UN sort of a thing, isn't it? Yeah. In fact, we used to have our own uh, simulated UN, but we actually got a notice from the real UN, you know, invoking copyright and demanding that we uh, scrap our UN. And so. Isn't that stupid? Because yeah. it really is a model United Nations, which is something that's like done in every elementary school, like in the world, pretty much. Yeah, I think they wanted to take it down because the site was a uh, promotional tool, and he used it to advertise his books. I guess so, if it's a pro for profit. True, or... the site itself isn't for, for profit, or at least it wasn't when we when uh, the uh, staff received the notice. Hmm. Yeah, for those of you who are wondering, I'm actually a game moderator on this site. I started off as just a player. And I became a forum moderator in about 2007-2008. Oh, and with quite the uh, quite the record of uh, rule-breaking on your account, as I recall by then, didn't, weren't you? No, I only had, like, I only had, I, my, most of my warnings were only for uh, stupid piddling garbage. I kept letting my nations uh, lapse in activity, which meant that they don't, uh, they're not active anymore, and you have to, re and at the time we didn't have the option to, uh, Restore your own account, oh. so you had to go to the you had to go begging for it, and so the person who kept restoring them got fed up and told me I couldn't uh, make that request anymore. Oh, that's funny. Mm -hmm. But anyways, essentially, you create a nation, you come on, you answer issues, you can join the uh, World Assembly, which has its own two branches, which ironically are still named after the two main branches of the United Nations. And I'm surprised that they, we haven't received a note about that either, seeing as how we have the General Assembly and the Security Council. The two... What are yeah, the two because the United, United Nations has the General Assembly, which is, uh, you know, the 200 or so, how, I forget how many nations there are in the world right now. The real world, that is. But uh, those are hosted by the... But that's for, for the uh, world, nations of the world. And then the Security Council has its, uh, its base five, you know... England, France, Russia, China, and America, plus whoever uh, they give token positions to, so uh, it doesn't appear that there's that the seat of power belongs to these uh, colonial powers. Okay. But yeah, we never, but no one, but they never, but the actual UN never complained about the fact that we used the terms General Assembly and and uh, Security Council, but they complained about the name United Nations. Oh, did you use their logo too? Uh, yeah, we used the logo, so we had to. Mm. But, and so because of that, we also have to take down the logos from regions and nations when they use them as flags. Interesting. Mm -hmm. We do we do invoke we do uh, carry out some copyright protection stuff, but usually it's the onus is on the uh, actual copyright holder. We don't do it just because somebody happens to notice a logo being used. Oh, you just respond to complaints. We respond to legitimate complaints from legitimate copyright holders, not just anybody. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. So why don't you tell people how the game is played, and then okay, maybe tell them so, what it is that you do specifically. Okay, so the game is essentially played by creating a nation. Since I w wish to have some privacy, I'm not going to go into what my actual account is, but uh, I'm sh but uh, seeing as how I'm the only one there who isn't from America, or one of you, it's pretty easy to guess who I probably am. But yeah, you go on and you create a nation, for example. You might you want to create... Uh, or banana stand or whatever, you go in, you uh, <laughs> see if the name's taken. If it's not, great. If it is, you cry a bit and you try something else. And then you choose your nation type, 
which actually, which can actually be customized when you uh, reach a population of 500 million. And then you add in your own custom fields for your national animal, your currency, and your nation's motto. These actually, we actually police these fields, so no obscenities are generally allowed. But we do encourage people to be creative. So if you want to put in something like uh, stank blossoms, we're not going to take that away. Just because it's stupid doesn't mean we're going to take it out. But if you put in uh, Fuckface McGee as your leader, we're going to take it out. <laughs> so then... Uh, once you've done the initial creation, you go. The next screen is actually a series of questions to serve as a starting point for your nation. Once you answer these, these will de determine what kind of nation you start out as. And when you and then once you log in, you start with five issues. And uh, the f one of the very first ones is um, whether or not you want to allow voting. The most basic issue, and. Uh, because you're a new nation, if if you don't, if whatever you whatever decisions you initially make on these five issues will drastically change your your the way your nation appears to you. So you're like the governor or the president or the prime yeah. minister of this nation, mm -hmm. and you're deciding on issues, or the the populace is uh, coming to you with different proposals about one various issue, and then you can choose which one of those proposals to accept. Yes. And the issues are generally created to be satirical or humorous, and they often have extreme options, with one, with me, with perhaps a middle op, with a middle ground option that has unintended consequences. So nothing is uh, cut and dry or black and white. It's quite uh, funny to see what the results are if you don't, if you're not anticipating the uh, consequences of your choice. Once, once you play for a little while, you actually unlock little rewards, such as uh, once you played for a couple of months and getting up to about two billion or so, no, two hundred and fifty million, you get to unlock. Um, I believe it's a capital city. You get to unlock later on at two hundred at uh, seven fifty your uh, leader, so you can actually name your leader and you put in uh, what their title is and everything. And these and, are just cosmetic rewards, right? Yeah, these are just cosmetic. Everybody gets them as a reward for playing for a long time. Mm -hmm. 500 million, you can change your nation's pre-title from the defaults to whatever humorous stuff you want. And so we get to, so you can put in whatever ridiculous stuff you want. So the... So that was like the Commonwealth of or the Grand Duchy of or... Yeah, so instead you can get the uh, holy moly uh, cheese-loving... Uh, Republic of whatever. So you can put in whatever ridiculous stuff you want. There are a limited number of characters, but you still get a fair number of characters. And, of course, at one billion people, you get to pick your own religion. In addition, your population just keeps going up every day. I believe that the biggest nations right now are somewhere between, or probably about, oh, I think they're over 30 billion people. I don't remember. Let's see. Oh, I thought they were a lot bigger. Oh, they are, well, actually, my my biggest nation is currently 26 billion. I think 30 billion, 28 to 30 billion must be the biggest. Wow. Mm -hmm. In addition, so when, and so in addition to the issues, you get the uh, rank. So if you've uh, been answering issues in a consistent way, it'll determine your uh, rank in the world. So let's say you've answered issues consistently to the point that, um, you have uh, established a very strong military. You'll probably get a, you'll get a badge for uh, being well armed or having a high defense budget. Similarly, if you haven't uh, been if you refuse to invest in any technology, you'll get uh, rank you'll you'll rank high for being a primitive backwater nation. It's really interesting. So we have these badges now, which reflect uh, 
your uh, the devotion to answering issues a certain way. Hmm. In addition to these, we also have we again we have the World Assembly where people make proposals, and the Security Council where people can condemn, commend regions or nations, and liberate regions which have been. Uh, locked out by raiders or just by people who are feeling vindictive and they don't want new people coming in. So these are proposals that govern all nations or just all nations within the World Assembly? Um, the General Assembly proposals only govern actual member nations, mm. but the Security Council proposals can govern regions and uh, they can state whether or not a nation has done good or bad deeds. Okay. And then we have our forums. Well, bad deeds does, uh, what's a bad deed? Um, for example, be for example, role-playing bad deeds. Well, like on the forums. Yeah, so... so not you, actually through gameplay, but yeah, ex they, external to it. Yeah, you're, so you role-play a nation that commits genocide, has uh, done all these horrific deeds, or has uh, led invasions and just been a general, and just in general very warlike. You can condemn them for that. Or you can, conversely, you can commend a nation for humanitarian efforts, for uh, trying to better the world through the World Assembly by introducing human rights and social uh, prog progress proposals. You can uh, in a, in, you can also role play separately or on the forums or on or in your region. People can now also create their own fact books. I have and uh, and these are where you expand on the uh, nation itself because you don't get a lot of um, options on the base, but uh, you can add and elaborate as much as you want in your fact book because this is where you put all the intricate information that can't be put onto your main page. Oh, so that's just like an optional wiki style, like the CIA fact book, right? Where it's just a bunch of facts about your nation? Yep. And that's just for like fun or role playing or whatever. That doesn't mm -hmm. have any bearing on gameplay. That's just yep. And then some people use it to make announcements to the region or to the world mm. or to uh, highlight treaties, constitutions. And it's just basically free form. You can play the game however you want. You can actually play the game, or you can just use it as a social media medium. That's what some people do when they just use the forums, such as our general forum, which is good for political debates and and discussion about various topics. And when you say it's good for political debates, is it actually good for it, or is it like the most toxic, repulsive community that uh, certain podcast hosts have ever been scared away from? I'm... Uh... I'm not going to touch this with a 10-foot <laughs> I found the people to have, like, hair-trigger, uh, <laughs> finger-on-the-panic-button angry <laughs> uh, responses They're... by default. Mm -hmm. They're special snowflakes. Yeah. Well, that's like a special blizzard <laughs> <laughs> from what I saw. I tried participating maybe twice in those forums, uh -huh. and I don't think I ever got more than, like, 10 posts in before just figuring that I... I I, I couldn't stand yeah, any they, sort of proximity they, some to people, people get very one-track minded and they form little cliques and they don't like uh, dissent or unpopular opinions. So, so you can have a perfectly legitimate opinion, but someone can call you a troll just because you don't share the majority opinion. So, internet. Mm -hmm. Sure. So, essentially, this brings me to what my job is. My job is to police this playground and make sure the children play nicely with each other. So and the forum, they, you mean, yeah? Yeah, the forum and the game itself. And if they don't play nicely, I get out the big red pen and I put a big X on their permanent record. Oh, yeah. So you whip out the ban hammer or or less, uh, less uh, enforcement. 
lesser enforcement. Well, uh, lesser enforcement is usually uh, bold red text. Warnings. Yeah, warnings or bans. And then there's uh, the ever popular permanent ban, which is uh, if you earn this, basically you are never allowed back on the site and we just delete you with extreme prejudice. Only a few people have earned such an honor. But most of the time, people do learn from their mistakes and uh, come back crying, telling us how they performed so much and want a second chance so badly. Usually these people toe the line, but have generally managed to not get themselves deleted for the third time. Mm -hmm. But if they're banned forever, they're banned forever. Yeah. There was only one exception ever, and this person was banned ten years ago, and we let them come back after ten years. Oh, wow. Because they, they actually came back onto the site and had stayed under radar for two years hmm. after being banned for 10 years. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Neat. So you're a community manager and a game moderator and stuff like that? Yep, along with uh, 20 others. That's and, a big team. Jeez. Yeah. And how big is the community? Let's see. According to our latest statistics on the world, we and this is Active Nations, and I've been... Some people have multiple nations, but I would say that we have a few thousand uh, players at least. And currently we have uh, 120,000 active nations. Holy moly, so I can see why. Jesus, it seems like a lot of uh, accounts for, for just 20 people. Is the, uh, the, the game owner slash author, Max Berry, considered to be a moderator? Is He's he an administrator. He basically is hands-off and only comes around... After uh, the majority of us reach an impasse, or it's a topic of uh, utmost uh, sensitivity that requires his touch. Okay. Or if people threaten with a lawsuit, because they... uh, usually that falls to us. Oh, what we it's do common is common enough. It's common enough that we have a template that we toss out. It either sh and it usually shuts people up, and they don't bother pursuing because it because they know that we're just going to delete them, and we completely disengage after that. So we give them a chance to answer yes or no, and everybody's answered no, and they back off. Mm. Because we make it very clear that once you're deleted, you get you essentially get the same response as any person who's actually been an active real violator. But the most pop, one of our most popular uh, lawsuit threats is you're infringing on my free speech. You're infringing on my political rights. People act as if uh, nation states is under the jurisdiction of the American Constitution. Yeah, of course. And it's, haha, you're funny. We're actually, the servers are actually in Canada. And the administrator is Australian. <laughs> That's right. And it's, it's they're, they're guests of your voluntary free service. It's not like you owe them anything. Yep, and like most in most websites, because it's considered private, uh, pro it's considered private, and so unless there is an extreme violation of international law, such as uh, sheltering pedophiles or hosting uh, pornography of that sort, you're you're generally not you're, the law is generally not going to be concerned with you unless you're breaking it itself. Right. No, you should be allowed as the owners of the site to ban whoever you want for whatever reason you want. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, basically my job is to make sure everybody plays nice, and if you play nice, you're more than welcome on the site, and uh, we welcome any community feedback from our players. We may not implement anything, but we do listen to our players and consider their suggestions, unless it's already been talked through very thoroughly, or the uh, or Max has had the final word on it. Mm. So I guess that's all I have to say about that, without going into any of our. Uh, 
more intimate details. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you for that. So nationstates.net, right? Yes. And that's a game that I played a little bit. Not very, very much, but it is a really engaging game, and it's expanded in all kinds of ways since I played it. Yeah, I played it, like, when I was in college, so, like, ten years ago or so. Yeah. And, um... It's kind of a, it's a cool game if you want to just play a game for like a few minutes a day and that's it. Mm -hmm. And because it's just a web-based browser game, it doesn't have graphics or anything. It's like a text-based game predominantly. The most, uh, uh, the, the most interaction you do is like clicking uh, radio buttons on a multiple choice thing and submitting. Mm -hmm. So th it's, a, it's a cool way to just spend a few minutes every day and to kind of watch your choices accumulate mm -hmm. over time and shape your nation. And it influences other... Uh, Issues that are brought to your attention based on how you answered previous ones, yep. right? And you do get, and we do have little graphics and stuff now which show uh, different in types of information based on how you answered. For example, I'm just showing uh, Brian right now what my economy looks like, and this is actually this graphic seems to have actually been updated since the last time I checked it. Yeah, me too. I, I, that looks really nice. Yeah. So what What are the the chief drivers of your economy of of your nation? Let's see. We have the black market, the private industry. State-owned industry and government, and the uh, biggest driver of my economy is the industry at the fifty-seven percent. Mm-hmm. And let's see. And this was a nation that you were role-playing for a while, right? It's not like you were choosing what you thought was morally the best. I remember these guys had like military and slavery and stuff for a long time, didn't uh, they? We're still, we're still military. We're still strong military. Mm. This is. Let's see. Where's my government spending? Here we go. Defense. 23% spending Defense on... Defense and education. Those are two... Those are usually not two things that you see equally spent on. So that's not too bad. I'd love to... Mm -hmm. I'd love to live in your fascist dictatorship. Um, actually, we're not a fascist dictatorship. Oh, didn't you used to be? Oh, we used to be, and we had no civil rights. But now we have lots of civil rights, but oh. it's because we have a very strong army. I've never backed down on keeping my army strong. Mm. Even though in real life I don't believe in spending 23% uh, of your federal budget on an armed force. <laughs> right. Well, that's really neat. Yeah, so we totally recommend that people give this game a try. It's free of charge, and it's fun if you want to play it moralistically, like with your own political choices, or if you want to just do a what-if kind of thing and have like a socialist paradise or like mm -hmm. a, a fascist... Uh, uh, goose-stepping crapathon. <laughs> yep, and... Uh, What's really fun is getting into one of the uh, little, the little smaller groups for role playing, and there's different types of role play. You can role play a fast, a past uh, uh, technology nation. So let's say you want to play a medieval style or a fantasy nation, mm -hmm. or you can play modern, postmodern. Some people even play futuristic, like Star Trek era type nations. Mm. Yeah, my nation is actually in that era. I can I put I set my nation to be. Uh, a thousand years ahead of where humanity is right now. So we have uh, mecha suits and uh, lasers, and and we've explored space. Mm -hmm. You also don't have to play as a human as a human nation. You can run your nation as being uh, let's see as being run by some sort of animals, like an animal race. Like you want to be Planet of the Apes, or you can create your own unique race. Or if you're like me, you create a nation of birds. Of cats course. and uh, and other various rodents. What's your currency? Uh, the Kaluka. What the hell is a Kaluka? Exactly. <laughs> oh, I see. Yeah, I think I remember my currency being like butt flashes or something like that. Oh yeah, I guess the currency can be whatever you want, basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, the space and it doesn't 
and uh, everyone's currency is different. Most people have the dollar because they know what the dollar is. But there's no, it's not much fun having a dollar. I like having my Kaluka. <laughs> Other people have uh, their equivalent or their their nations, their real world equivalent. We've seen Benares, Dongs. Oh yeah, we actually had a uh, small issue recently. Moderation had to. Uh, revisit one of its policies on uh, custom fields because we had been deleting uh, custom fields with the word dong in it as the currency until uh, someone appealed it and we overturned our policy and have, and have been uh, not uh, removing it as long as it's been set as a currency and nothing else just because of its uh, sexual connotations. You said dong. Why, is that a currency somewhere? Yeah, Vietnam. Ah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay. So that's it. And for those of you who want to come by, come on by. We could always use more players. Both, mm -hmm. We can always use more players. And uh, I'm sure that the community will be welcoming as long as uh, you're willing to tolerate a bit of uh, the initiation process, which is who are you and uh, why your opinions matter. So when you post, make sure you're ready to cite sources because... In nation states, in the general form, they love their sources. If you don't have sources, they're gonna ask you for sources. That's optional, right? Though it's yeah. optional, but it's it's how you get respect as a as a uh, debater. Oh, I mean, like you don't have to participate. In the oh no, you don't have all. to. You can just click button. You can click like the radio buttons, and that's as much mm -hmm. interaction as you have with the game, if that's what you want, right? Yep, that's the minimum. But uh, there's all these other stuff. So come come by, participate as much or as little as you want. Mm hmm. Well, thank you for that. Nationstates.net. Mm -hmm. Cool game. All right. I wanted to ask you about something else now because it's been a little more than a week or so since you upgraded to Windows 10. And mm -hmm. I was curious uh, about your impression of it or whether it's gotten in your way or whether you barely even notice that it's there. Mm, I barely notice that it's there. The only thing I notice is that I no longer have my uh, my Metro screen. Or what was it called? Oh, the start screen? Yeah, the start screen. I don't have that anymore. Oh, yeah. You can still choose that, by the way. Sure, I can choose it, but... I don't miss it at all. It was it was a nice little thing to have, but I don't miss it at all. I like my start menu that I don't have to navigate, but I don't have to navigate through it, you know, Windows 95 style to find that one thing that's 10 folders in. <laughs> right. But other than that, it hasn't gotten in my way. I don't feel like anything different. In fact, I like that uh, most of my windows now have like just, just the, the tiniest, thinnest little borders. Oh, yeah, I like that, too. Like the bezel, the border around um, mm -hmm. all of the windows rendered on the desktop. They used to be, I don't know, like 5 or 10 pixels wide or so, and now they're like 2 pixels wide. So it looks really sharp, and you get much more content and less user interface itself. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of still as easy to move your cursor to the edge of a window and to resize it. It just there's less of a visual indicator. So uh, I think it looks nice. It doesn't look quite as boxy. It looks more... <laughs> The content itself is more prominent. Yeah, I haven't had much of an issue with anything. In fact, I found it to be just as, uh, so far, just as stable as Windows 8.1 was for me. Well, that's good. Mm -hmm. No real complaints. My only complaint was the setup process. I just got buzzed by a budgie. <laughs> that might happen once or twice, huh? Mm -hmm. And the only problem was the setup and that it didn't push it through immediately for me. Yeah, that's right. So most people got a little flag icon sort of a thing saying, well, and you got this too, right? Saying, click here if you want to reserve your copy of Windows 10, right? Yeah. But then on launch day, it still said that. It didn't say it's time to upgrade now. You had to do it manually, right? Yeah. 
I don't know if that's because we were too impatient or what. Maybe that would have shown the next day, but we're nerds. We're not going to wait till the next day. Exactly. Not that I didn't pressure you into it, too. No, no, no. Who are you? Oh, Windows 10. Me? You want Windows 10? Go get Windows 10. Have you gotten Windows 10 yet? <laughs> oh, no? <laughs> Here, let me let me download it for you. Let me put on a USB stick for you. Did you put the USB stick in yet? Windows 10, Windows 10. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and he's not exaggerating. I know. For I'm once. Not, I know. <laughs> I know, that was a little pushy, perhaps. A little so then, pushy. So then you installed it off of the USB stick, and how did that go? It went well until I rebooted, and then it asked me for a key. And I'm like, why is it asking me for a key? Oh, I didn't take the USB stick out of course. Oh, that's right, yes. I forgot about that. Mm -hmm. And then I boot in, and my resolution was terrible. Because I hadn't updated my drivers. Yeah, I was surprised about that. You have a, a modern NVIDIA... Video card. I'm surprised that it didn't uh, keep your video drivers. And mm -hmm. what other driver didn't get installed? Sound. Oh, my mouse. Actually, no, my mouse just had to be plugged in. And just, oh, I, yeah. I just had to unplug it and replug it in. Yeah, that was weird. Because my drivers were fine. It's just that I had to unplug it and replug it in. It was weird, but it works fine now. Yeah, that was weird. You got all flustered, and I had to wheel over to your machine for five minutes or so trying to navigate uh, and succeeding in navigating through. Uh, the interface and the web browsers and stuff mm. like that with just the keyboard. Mm. It's fun to do that every now and then. I have, uh, fun, I haven't really used it since college or a little bit afterwards, but mm. I have fun memories using the Lynx text-only web browser from uh, Linux. Uh -huh. You remember that one? Yep. There were two, L-Y-N-X and L-I-N-K-S. And L-Y-N-X links uh, was, it just looked like a textual email sort of when you visited a web browser. I bet it hardly works anymore with all of the JavaScript and stuff in the web browsers. But then the other one, L-I-N-K-S, it kind of laid out the page. It looked like uh, it was rendering a regular web page just without the images, so it would put things where they belong, and that was really attractive and really fun to navigate. And it had no mouse support, I don't think, so you would just uh, use the arrow keys to skip from link to link. It was a really nice streamlined way to browse the web, but it's kind of a novelty curiosity now nowadays. There's not really much practical reason for using links, either of them, maybe for testing. Supposedly, using those web browsers emulates pretty closely what uh, search engine spiders kind of see when they go to your site, because they really only look at the text and maybe some of the... It's probably different nowadays, but at least 10 years ago or so, uh, the, those spiders would really only look at the text and the hyperlinks and see what words are hyperlinked, and uh, it would ignore your images cause, unless they had metadata, which they usually don't, blah, blah, blah. Oh, well. So you're pleased with Windows 10 for the most part? Yep, uh, and I even uh, set up my dad with it because he, ha I told, I encouraged him to set it to uh, reserve a copy, and so I told him about it, and he asked me to, and he told me he noticed that he was going to ask me to set it up for him, so I t I went ahead and did it for him. Oh, how did that go? He he upgraded from seven, right? Yes, it went pretty well actually. In fact, I didn't have to do too much for him. I just had to show him how to, how to do some basic uh, operations because he hadn't uh, seen the tiles or anything in Windows 8, so he was mm -hmm. unfamiliar about, with that. I had to show him the Windows Store, and I had to uh, get his account associated with Windows 10, so mm. he could uh, log in and actually use the Windows Store properly. Mm. Because he still was using the old-style login, where you created a user account on your computer, and you just logged in. You didn't have to have uh, user at whatever.com. Oh, right. You can actually do that in Windows 10. As well, the default is to have an online Windows user account, 
but uh, you can still opt to have a local only account. You just can't use the uh, the app store. Yeah, I know. I figured that's what I figured I'd let him. I'd make sure he had the option to use the app store, preempting any uh, inevitable questions about why can't I do this? Can you help me with this? Yeah, good thinking. Well, that's good. Yeah. The only wild card that I kind of had in mind and was the reason why I was going to uh, suggest you not to. Is the uh, music him. equipment, yeah. Yeah, he's a guitarist I, and he has a. Uh, he has like a sound, an external sound card sort of thing that he can plug his mm -hmm. quarter-inch guitar uh, plug into his electric guitar into. So I didn't know whether there was a driver for that, so he'll have to check that out. Yeah, I encouraged him to test that stuff out. He hasn't uh, come to me telling me about how it doesn't work yet. So I mean, assume it either works or he hasn't tested it. Yeah, fingers crossed. At least you have thirty days to downgrade. Yeah, back, I told him to, about that. Okay, so he had better get off his keister, but he, that was just a few days ago. Yeah. And if and if that doesn't work, he always can use his uh, acoustic, electric acoustic one. I don't know. It's like acoustic, but it has a battery in it or something. Oh, well, it's not necessarily whether it's an electric guitar. It's just the fact that he plugs something into the It's a different computer. interface because this one doesn't plug into an amplifier. Well, anything's better than recording off of his cell phone like he uh. was before. That sounded so crappy. He's like, oh, it sounds pretty good, doesn't it? I'm like, uh, no, no. He, that's because he doesn't have a real sound card. He well, has because he would record it on his phone and then he'd listen to it on his phone. He's like, oh, it sounds great. Like on the speaker, like earpiece of his phone. <laughs> Piece of crap phone. Anyway. So moving on from that, both the, I, I haven't had any complaints from him and I definitely like Windows 10. I would have used the beta or, or signed up for the uh, Microsoft beta, but I've had bad luck in the past, so I'm not going to uh, try that again. <laughs> Yeah, that's what smart people would say. I've had lots and lots of bad luck, and it's mostly like self-imposed bad luck. But I can't keep away from the cutting edge, the bleeding edge. Even though I bleed all yeah, over so my Yeah, so how computer. many hard drives have you killed doing this? Well, I don't know if my I don't think my hard drives being killed were because of my own deeds. I've had horrible luck with hard drives. It must have been about a year ago or so when we were doing a big cleanup of the house that I I showed like a stack of eight hard drives or something that I'd accumulated over the past. 12 or 13 years or so, I've had very bad luck with hard drives. My last two hard drives have been the most reliable hard drives I've ever had. Oh, and I also killed a solid-state drive, but that's because I was... I think I was trying to copy three files at the same time. I don't think I'll be doing that again. And yeah, listeners, I do not recommend doing more than one thing at a time on your solid-state drives. Take it from me. When I, when I tried that, uh, what happened? I think the file copies just paused, all of them just paused. I'm like, what the hell is this? And I was still in Windows, and it was still operational, but uh, it wasn't working right, so I figured I'd reboot it. But because my solid-state drive had already died, once I rebooted, I couldn't boot back in. Yeah, and there's so once you you're... Because unlike magnetic drives, when your solid-state drive drive dies, it you cannot do anything to save it. It's completely kaput. Whereas with a magnetic drive, you do have a chance at least salvaging your files, even if you can't get into the operating system itself. Yeah, that's that's generally true. I'm sure there's more detail to it than that, but that's mm -hmm. that's pretty much this exactly is, it. Yeah, this is the general gist of it. There's more details than that. But yeah, I've been lucky with my solid-state drive because I haven't killed any fact, I don't think I've really killed any hard drives other than the ones I used for school. I know it's with the uh, removable ones that we had to transport back and forth. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. I wonder whether they still do that. That's right. You just take a regular hard drive and you'd have to buy the certain kind of enclosure that was compatible with the... Uh, docking bays that they had at all the computers at school. This was just for the computer science uh, mm -hmm. networking, network administration students like we were. And so you would have your operating systems on your hard drive and you would sit down at any of the workstations and shove your hard drive in and turn it on and it would boot off of your hard drive. 
So it was kind of nice to carry your own session around with you like that. But it was pretty archaic, and there's a lot of mechanical, delicate stuff that wasn't really intended to be carried around in backpacks and on the bus and stuff like yep. that. So they were And pretty... it often resulted in uh, certain people leaning on my computer tower and it turning off when I'm trying to do work and install a server. Kiss my grits. I would, but I'm full from breakfast. Thank you for the offer. <sighs> yeah, she'll never let me forget this. Well, so yeah, I, I, I was a, a teacher assistant while uh, I was in college just for a few extra bucks. And that's how Bianca and I met in college. I was her teacher assistant. So I would have like two, basically two different scenarios would happen. Usually the one that would happen would be a student would call me over because something didn't work in an assignment they were working on. And so I'd walk over and as soon as I walked over, then it would work and none of us would know why. So we would just kind of shrug it off and say whatever. But with uh, the misses over here, I walked over. Why don't you tell the story since you're you the one? You walked over because no one, because there was no one to help, and you came over to talk to me. Oh, because there was no one to help. I'm. Oh, thank you. For Alert. <laughs> oh yeah, good use of school resources there. <laughs> uh -huh. Came over to talk, and you leaned on my tower as I'm installing uh, Windows uh, Windows Server. I forget which one. When... Two thousand, I think. Yeah, you leaned on it, and it shut down. It, like reboot, didn't it? Didn't reboot. Power cable was. Loose or something. You you made me lose all my you you made me lose forty minutes of progress. Oh man, and that operating system, at least in those labs, took forever to boot up. Mm -hmm. It took like ten minutes to boot up. Well, I've already apologized for it, so. Uh, yeah, well, this is your public shaming. Okay. Well, I'm not <laughs> apologizing publicly, but I will accept your shame, as usual. <laughs> all right. One other thing I wanted to talk about was that I have somewhat reluctantly switched over to the Chrome web browser from Firefox. It's something that I've kind of, it's something I've kind of played with here and there for the past few years, ever since Chrome came out, I guess. I've been using Firefox since before it was called Firefox. I first used it, I think the first name that it was called was Phoenix. Um, then because Phoenix was already taken, it was already a registered trademark or something, they changed their name to Firebird. And this was like version 0.1 or something like that. I was really excited about web browsers. I was big into Internet Explorer and Netscape Navigator, uh, probably just the two, I suppose. And so I was eager to try something else at the time, just for fun. And then, so they went from Firebird to Firefox, and uh, it's all history from there. I think Firefox was the 1.0 release, and Phoenix and Firebird were uh, before that. So I love Firefox. I love the uh, extensions that you can get, and I love how uh, customizable the user interface is. It's been getting more and more bloated over the years, but I haven't really found that it slows down the web browser at all. Um, but uh, unfortunately, just because I have an Android phone and I'm kind of invested somewhat in the Google ecosystem, I am kind of at their mercy in terms of compatibility. And ever since Google launched the Chrome web browser, they've been intentionally breaking compatibility with other web browsers, which is so sleazy. So for example, I subscribe to a couple of magazines, PC Gamer Magazine and Maximum PC. Um, I tried a different service at first, but then I tried Google um, Newsstand, just because it uh, renders nicely on my phone, which is where I usually read magazines. But I like to read them on my computer screen, too. But for some idiotic reason, Google forces you to use the Chrome browser to view magazine pages. 
which is the most ludicrous thing I can think of because a magazine page is like no more sophisticated and in fact way less sophisticated than a web page. It's like a static web page with no hyperlinks on it. So there's no technological reason at all why it shouldn't work in in every web browser. But for some reason they sequester it to Chrome, which is total bullshit. Um, what else? They also have, they I, I rely on the Google Talk instant messaging uh, service, and I have for a long time. A bunch of my friends are on there. Um, strangely enough, a lot of my friends now seem to be using Skype, which I, we had always considered to be like the most bloated instant messaging service, and we never installed it. That was like a thing that moms used occasionally to talk to people for free long distance or whatever. So I'm surprised to see that Skype is kind of increasing in popularity. But I still have friends that use Google Talk, and I've kept in touch with them. If uh, First, I used the official Google Talk client, which was pretty much never updated and is really ugly and had poor features, and they finally retired that. And then I tried some third-party instant messaging clients. I tried, like, Miranda and um, Trillion and uh, Pigeon, which is the free open source one, which I think is hideous and super bloated and is... It works on all systems and is optimized for none. Um, and so the only official client that you can get now for uh, Google Talk are either a web-based one through your Gmail interface or other Google Plus interfaces, and who uses Google Plus for anything, or there's an app, a Chrome app for the Chrome browser, which acts a lot like a local application, but you need to have Chrome running in the background. And having Chrome running in the background that eats up a good like five or six hundred megabytes of RAM so that they can keep all of the web browsing and optimization stuff loaded in, in RAM for quick access, which is a hell of a lot compared to like Miranda, I think, used 12 megabytes of RAM versus 600. Like, give me a break. So as I'm relying more and more on and various... here's Trillion right now. It's using almost nothing. Tri oh, my wife uses Trillion because you're connected to Google Talk, IRC... How many things? I'm connected to four things right now, and I use IRC for uh, moderating. And it's set, she's using 17 megs of RAM. And me, I'll close, I'm curious now, I will close Chrome, or as much of it as I can, and Ugh. with only Google Talk running, I have, I don't know, it's at least, it's about it's about 200 megs of RAM right now, but it, it often goes much, much higher mm -hmm. than that. So, anyway, I'm going to give the Chrome browser a try. I find the user interface much more old-fashioned and much uglier than Firefox. Even before Firefox had a, a semi-recent uh, UI refresh, and they've had one or two of those uh, recently, but they just did a major one a few versions ago. I think they called it Aurora. Mm -hmm. It's really beautiful. Um, they uh, haven't really updated the UI of Chrome in a long, long time. It looks very old-fashioned and very textual, Not uh, whereas uh, Firefox is a lot rounder and has more iconography instead of text labels. So, like, whatever. It's not any faster. It's not any better. In fact, it has fewer features, fewer hotkeys and stuff like that. It's less customiz customizable than Firefox. But if Google wasn't an evil company that's trying to break compatibility by making proprietary web apps, then I would I would stick with Firefox. But for now, anyway, mm -hmm. I will I will tolerate Chrome. Okay, enough of that. Yeah, um, enough of whining about Chrome and it being a piece of shite. I'm a whiner. What do you think podcasts are? Um, virtual wine simulators, man. Until eh. you start talking about the good stuff. <laughs>
Okay, well, let's talk about the good stuff, huh? Corrections. Let's talk oh, about that's the, a good stuff. Let's, 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 let's other, we'll let other people whine now, vicariously through me. So, uh, Chris Olson, our uh, fantastic host from uh, last week, um, who talked about the demo scene, he has a quick self-correction. He corrects himself to say that Microprose was acquired by Spectrum Holobyte in 1993, and Sid Meier left in 1996. So thank you for that uh, that uh, fact check, Chris. I know that we were struggling with the uh, timeline of Microprose. Microprose. What racing game did they make? Microprose? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. They probably made a few, because they were big into... Oh, Grand Prix, wasn't it? Simulations. Oh, was that one that your dad had? Yep, and I played too. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, wowee. Which one did you play? Because I, in fact, played... I forgot about this game. There's one from 1992 for DOS, and I actually played that. Mm. Ah, Grand Prix 1, a.k.a. World Circuit. World Circuit is the name that I recognize. Yeah, I'm not sure which one it was, but I know that it was one of the two. Ooh, well, I don't think it was a DOS one that you would have played, was it? No, I would have played one that was uh, compatible for Windows 95. Oh, there's even a, a YouTube video of Monaco, which was my favorite level because it had, like, some bridges and city and mm -hmm. stuff like that. It was, like, one of those untextured polygon <laughs> early 3D games, which is something I should take note of because I'll be speaking with Anatoly in a couple of weeks talking about early 3D games. Uh, yeah, so Microprose, they made a whole bunch of games. They were around... For, I don't know, 10, 15 years, something like that. Mm -hmm. So, thank you for your self correction, Chris. We have, what else? Oh, is that all the corrections we had? I wanted to give thanks to two of my friends. I don't know if either of them listen to the podcast, but uh, I'll say hello and give them thanks publicly anyway. Uh, one is to my good friend Shannon, who is a friend of mine from college who bought me a game called Ori in the Blind Forest, which I haven't <laughs> I haven't tried it out yet. He bought it for me, and uh, he asked me, uh, here you go, do you like Metroid-style games? I'm like, uh, no. He's like, okay, we'll try it. <laughs> so I'll have to give it a try. He, it, it, he describes it as a Metroid-alike. So thank you, Shannon, for Ori in the Blind Forest. That was very nice of him to buy it for me. Ooh, the Blind Forest, what's the matter? And he's a, uh, what, a white cane to see where the fuck is going? I guess so. And I want to give uh, thanks to Antonimity from uh, Twitter uh, for buying me, or no, he gave me a, a beta key. He had a spare beta key for a game called Submerged, which is kind of a 3D combat game with some sort of water mechanics, thus the name Submerged, I suppose. He, he said it was a beta key, but when I look at the Steam store, it's actually like publicly fully available now. Early so I, access. No, I don't even think it's early access anymore. I don't know, let's take a look. I don't think it was. So, uh, regardless, either way, I'm very much appreciated, Antonimity. Thank you very, very much. Let me see. Submerged. Yeah, this was on my wish list, which is why he had oh, given it to I me. Thought... Yeah, it's no longer on huh. No longer on early access. I think I, I was on my wish list when it was early access. Oh, yeah, because I must have looked at it one or two weeks ago, which is why I remember the name. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think me too. It was on my, what's it called when Steam gives you the whole... Wish list? Wi the, no, the, 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 it gives you like a whole bunch of uh, games that you can look at one after the other. Q? A Q. A Q, Q. Yeah, which is what you've been doing. <laughs> right. <laughs> and now we have an extremely, extremely special letter. And when I say letter, I mean actually a letter. I mean, we've gotten... Uh, 
we, we've, we've gotten emails and voicemails. I've gotten, uh, we, we've read out <laughs> a Twitter direct message one. I was about to say, we've written out, we've read out a letter that was a series of tweets, a long series of tweets. I've gotten things to say uh, that people have told me verbally. So it is a piece of paper and it's handwritten. I know what a world, huh? Apparently paper still exists. And pens, too. So this is a really, really, really special letter. Um, and I will allow the uh, letter to speak for itself. Let's read it out. It says, Dear Squiffum. Oh, sorry. That's, <laughs> that's S-Q-F-M. <laughs> Howdy, y'all. It's been a long while since I got to write in. Actually, this is the first time I've written in. First, a little story about Sims 1. I had a family of two who were going through marital problems. Wife would go to work, and the husband would stay home and play computer games all day. I'm too depressed to look for a job, he'd say. <laughs> Wife came home all pissed off one day, and the neighbor came by to say hi. Wife and neighbor's wife hit it, off, hit it right off, off the bat. I thought, why not add a bit of fuel to this spark? A few hugs and tickles later, the wife and neighbor's wife were fur-trading like it was 1778 all over again. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> Well, the husband didn't like that that much. One day, they invited the neighbors over for dinner. Wife entertained her new girlfriend in the dining room, while the husband tried his hand at cooking. He got about five minutes into the pot roast before the whole house was on fire. <laughs> <laughs> the two wives got baked along with the two husbands. Oh. Baked or baked? Ugh. Triple murder-suicide all over a few innocent tickles. Sure hope Sims ain't a reflection of the player's psyche. <laughs> Second thing, I'm so glad you and Francisco did the episode on soundtracks. We didn't talk about game music enough. I have a recommendation for our lovely listeners. Grab a Chrome browser and head on over to... Crap, forgot the URL. It's gamemusic.cx, I think. I actually looked it up, and it is gamemusic.multimedia.cx. To listen to music tracks from a huge library of chiptunes. They even have MIDI-slash-wavetable-based music from the Nintendo DS. You'll need a player to listen, for what it's worth. I can only recommend uh, one soundtrack, Outcast, the game, composed by Lenny Moore. Back in 2009, I interviewed Lenny at the GDC. We spent two hours talking musical composition theory and games. The guy was absolutely congenial and kind to a complete nobody. I have a taped recording of the conversation somewhere. Maybe someday you can play it back for our listeners. Anyway, it's a fully orchestrated soundtrack with a huge Russian chorus. No one talks about this game, nor the music, and that's a tragedy. Which leads me to my last comment. Find Outcast and play the damn thing. It's a third-person adventure game with shooter elements. To this day, it still looks beautiful in a lo-fi voxel sort of aesthetic. Uh... Each province really has its own culture, color palette, and atmosphere. The music really adds to that. It's what I think would be Ben's favorite game of all time, BFGAT, <laughs> if he ever got the chance to play it. It may not be truly obscure, since uh, GOG carries it, but it doesn't get any attention either. I really hope it gets a remaster someday. I'm thinking about y'all every day. Co-hosting Square Waves FM was the highlight of my year. I hope to be back someday. Until then, I promise to keep writing in. Your biggest fan, Chris. Chicken burst. <laughs> that would be Apollo. It would be. So, my goodness, thank you very, very much, former current, I'm sorry, co-host of Square Waves FM, Chris. Ever, ever, ever so glad to hear from him. 
I've heard from him a few times now, and while I'm not really at liberty to discuss the terms of uh, his uh, situation right now, I can say that things are going all right for him, and it's sure great to hear uh, from him in this letter. I got a couple of other letters from him as well, so uh, we hope to keep him an active uh, member of the podcast and uh, keep it warm for him for when he can rejoin us, hopefully in the not-too-distant future. That's really special. That's very, very, very cool. So, Outcast. I don't think I'm familiar with this game. I'm going to have to check that out. Yeah, chirp. Apollo, shut your damn bird yap. Chirp. Your friends over there, go over. All right, we're chirping. So, I got to check out this gamemusic.multimedia.cx site. I took a quick look at it, and it looks like it's just a. Bird. It looks like it's just a website that hosts a bunch of, uh, like, native game music files. Can you scare that bird so that she goes rejoin her friend? I'm going to go scare a bird. Pardon me, podcast. Hey, Apollo. So, yeah, go play Outcast because apparently you have to go play Outcast. Apparently so. Apparently Ben has to go play it because it will be his favorite game. So, yeah, so this website has, um, let me see, it has NES, SNES, Genesis, Game Boy, Nintendo DS, Saturn, and Dreamcast uh, native sound files. So those are like MIDI real-time rendered music files. So go check it out. And Chris, all the best to you. Thank you very much for the recommendation. I'll be sure to check that out. Um, let's now talk about what we played this week before we get into our topic, shall we? Okay. Why don't you go first, Tuts? Okay. Before I go into what I play every week, we'll play. Let's talk about a couple of different things I played. As I, as I mentioned last time, I had been working my way through uh, Wolfenstein New Blood, which I finally finished. Oh, I'm, new... Wait. Oh, yeah. New no, order. New order, sorry. I'm looking at the notes, and I'm thinking to, and I'm thinking about something else to myself, and crust uh, wires. <laughs> anyway, so New Order is uh, what I had been playing, and I finished it. I actually was uh, not disappointed by the ending. I quite liked the ending, and I thought it was a nice change of pace. Yeah, some people really disagreed with the ending of this game, and we won't spoil it because it's a relatively new game, and it's been on sale for ridiculously cheap considering the very high quality of it, so I would encourage you all to give it a try. We won't spoil it. Yeah. So, having finished it, I moved on to uh, the uh, game that is supposed to precede it, Wolfenstein Old Blood. There we go. That's better. You got it. I haven't gotten too far into it, but um, it's so far I like it. It's a little... Uh, it's not too different from the uh, one I've just been playing, but it's obvious that uh, Blaska, which is uh, German, is absolutely atrocious. Hot dog. All <laughs> oh, right, Frank Furter. <laughs> There's some really funny jokes right off the bat in that in that game, and mm -hmm. who like looks for jokes in a game about Nazis and stuff? But mm -hmm. there they are. Did you see the joke about the grammar Nazi? Um, I don't think so. I haven't gotten too far in. I'm still trying to... I have to get past those big electrical, electrified robots who keep blowing my face off. Okay, well, you'll, you'll get there. Mm -hmm. there's, a great, there's a great grammar Nazi joke by a Nazi. So that's doubly funny. Mm -hmm. Well, that's my thing. Well, last week when we had been talking about The Sims, I had mentioned Sims Medieval, and I wound up convincing myself to go back and play it. So I picked it up again and uh, resumed my kingdom, which I, which I had only partially built up. And needless to say, I uh, had no idea what I was doing because it's been a lot while since I played. First mission I did, I completely messed up because I had to make a bunch of potions and my uh, doctor was a useless old twat base. Oh, so you resumed an old save game? 
Yeah, there's no point in starting a new one because I had made such good progress on this one. All right, and that's a long game. It is a long game, but you get. But once you complete each mission, you get. A, you can create a new kingdom, and you get um, the option to recreate everything from scratch and do different missions. Because once you because once you pass the initial kingdom, there's different um, levels and they have different uh, quests that you can do. Although some of them are repeated, not all of them are the same, and you can. Uh, and be, and when you're doing each each quest, there sometimes you get different options. So, you, so even if you get the same quest twice in different kingdoms, you can uh, take different options and ultimately uh, finish it a different way than you did last time. So, for example, you could uh, choose to uh, play a song for somebody as a bard, or you can choose to write them a poem. I chose to do the song, which meant I had to write a song for them, which was uh, kind of neat. Mm -hmm. What else have I been playing? Oh, oh, it's, it's so refreshing, by the way, to have like quests in a game like this and have them resolved through something like completely different than combat. Mm -hmm. And there is combat in that game, but not. But it's um, depends on who you are and what kind of a situation. And sometimes you're given a choice: do you want to solve it with violence or through other means? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the only time you really get combat options is when you play as the knight, the spy, or the monarch. When you play, at, and you might get a combat option if you play as the blacksmith, but more than likely you'll, you're, uh, you can resolve it by making somebody a weapon. Mm -hmm. But if you're playing as a as a Jacobin or Pateran priest, usually you resolve it either by uh, instilling the fear of the watcher into the people or uh, inspiring the people. Oh right, and aren't you the watcher, the player? Mm -hmm. is, or is that is that defined, or is it just kind of inferred? It's inferred. I love that. That yeah, you you have two different churches that uh, worship you, the player, and they kind of both have different philosophies about mm -hmm. what your intents are and how to worship you. Yeah, and what's interesting is you. If you want the best way to define them, is the Jacobins would be the Catholics and the Paterans would be the Protestants. Oh yeah, because the, uh, the Jacobins are all are the very strict. Fear of God, fire and brimstone. You're going to hell if you don't do what we say. Whereas the Paterans are more of the reformed uh, sect and more about, you know, love thy man, love thy fellow human and all this uh, touchy-feely garbage. He's trying to talk me into wanting to play this game, actually. Mm -hmm. Then install it. I very well may. Very good, then. Mm. And, of course, what? tell me... What have you had to build? What must you build? Um, must I build a boat? Yeah, you must build a boat. I must? Yeah. I did, actually. Oh, yeah? Tell us about that. Oh, me? No, yeah, you. Okay, I've been playing this. We, we've both been playing this game, You Must Build a Boat. We talked about this briefly um, when Joe Mastrioni was on the show. He brought it up because he had been playing it for iPhone, I think. We've been playing it on PC. It's also available for Android, and I don't even know what else. Um, it's like a... It's, at its heart, a match-three game, kind of like Bejeweled. But um, the things that you match are, like, swords or wands to uh, attack an enemy that's in front of you. Or you match keys if you're running up to a chest. Or uh, there are crafting materials, which are, like, might and mind or something like that. It's yeah. like a flexing muscle and a brain. And then there's crates. And then there's crates which have a chance of... Having a special item in them, which will usually just do a lot of damage or a crowd control or something on the enemies. Or they'll uh, be food, or it'll be uh, an item that you can come back and sell for more gold. That's right. So what's what's unique about You Must Build a Boat versus something like Bejeweled 
is that you play a series of games and they all sort of compound upon each other where you're always making progress towards a goal <laughs> at the very end. And um, so yeah, every time you play, even if you have a really crappy round, you've still contributed some resources or uh, mm -hmm. And it always money. tells you, you win! Yeah, that's right. When you lose, it tells you you win, which is kind of a charming uh, quirk. Um, so you uh, do a bunch of small uh, objectives, which moves you to the next area on the map. And when you get to the very end of the map, then you have a pretty tough challenge right at the very end, and then you win the game. You build a boat. And in fact, you like the first thing you do in the game is build a boat, but the game is called You Must Build a Boat. And you're always building bigger boats so that you can get to the end of the map. Yeah, you're the... building a bigger boat so you can eventually go out to sea, and you're recruiting other monsters to help you move your boat along. That's and... right, because the propulsion for your boat is everybody on your boat jumping up and down at the same time. So you need to build bigger boats so that you can fit more people on it to jump up and down at the same time. It's really funny. It's a really well-made game. Oh, and it's the sequel to a game called Ten Million, which is a good game, too. You and I both finished the, mm -hmm. the prequel, or sorry, the, the, the previous first game and its sequel. So it's an inexpensive game. There's a thread that I wasn't realize, I didn't realize this was a thing. There's a thread on the Steam community that says that You Must Build a Boat is actually free for owners of Ten Million. And if you like reply, if you email the author, he'll give it to you for free. But I think the game is like four or five bucks or something, and it's so well done and has so many little incremental improvements mm -hmm. over the original. You know, pay the guy his money. He worked hard on it, and he deserves some success. Mm -hmm. But if you want to, then talk to him and give him proof of your purchase of the previous game, and he'll give you the sequel for free, which is unbelievably generous and very cool of him. And right. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about that you played this week? Well, of course, World of Warcraft, my ongoing subscription. Of and, course. And How long have you been subscribed for, would you say? Um, since Elder War came out. Oh, you've been subscribed nonstop since then? Pretty much, yeah. So that's how long? That's like six years plus? Mm-hmm. Wow. Let's not convert that to $15 a month, shall we? Oh, please don't. But yeah, I've been uh, I've been playing consistent. I've been playing this one tune consistently. A Night Elf Druid by the name of K-Kit. And for those of you who are wondering where I got the name, I actually got it from uh, Guild Wars Faction. No, Guild Wars Nightfall. There is a boss about halfway through when you go when you're going to to Babby <laughs> uh, when you're going to Babby and uh, it's a uh, monk boss and I decided that because I was rolling my night elf druid to primarily be restoration I would give her a uh, nice healer name so I picked Kit. Was that a boss in Guild Wars that dropped a staff? Yes. Okay, I seem to remember that vaguely. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, so that's your guy Kit. Yep, so I uh, originally wanted her to be Restoration with a uh, laser chicken off spec. And, uh, but Why don't you tell people what laser chicken is? Laser chicken is essentially the balance spec. You balance the solar and lunar powers to uh, channel them damage. into uh, attacks. And, hmm. But, because, but I actually went more towards uh, balance when Cataclysm came up because... Uh, Blizzard messed up the healing uh, system and made and uh, increased the cost so much to heal with some ba very basic spells that it was punishing to heal as a druid. Yeah, that's right. Every time uh, a WoW expansion comes out or is about to come out, Blizzard is not shy about changing the mechanics of characters and uh, classes. They do a lot of that, which is sort of neat because... I mean, it's one thing to become familiar with exactly the way that a game works and exactly the way that your character works, but 
it may not be balanced in terms of the way that the game plays, and it may it may be overly complicated or not make sense or something. Just because it's something that you've memorized, it doesn't mean that it makes sense. True. So, but, it could, but it, I know that it alienated a few players when they changed that. We had our uh, we had a paladin healer uh, rage quit on us. Oh, we sure did! Right in the middle of the raid. <laughs> That's right. Was that right when Cataclysm was going to come out? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Xandragos. <laughs> oh, poor guy. He was pressing all the same buttons that he always was on his Paladin Healer, and uh, he something wasn't going right, and he got all fed up, and I don't think we ever saw him again. He cried a whole bunch in the event, and then logged though. off. Yeah, he sure did. And then we needed a new healer. Was that the day that we killed the Lich King? No. Yes. No, really? Yeah. He quit, like, moments before? Yeah. We've never told that. I've never told that story, by the way. I've been looking for an opportunity to tell the story. Oh, this is a great King. story. <laughs> Would you like to go ahead? Okay, why don't I go ahead? This is a story. I wanted to tell this story when Chris and I were talking about massively multiplayer online games. But believe it or not, we found more than enough to say in our three-plus-hour uh, time span. And so I decided to uh, let this one slide. But what the heck? I'm, I'm podcasting today with uh, someone who uh, assisted very much with us defeating the Lich King. Mm -hmm. So there is... a. Uh, I, I am no longer really at all interested in raiding in World of Warcraft. Um, there are different like multiplayer challenges uh, in World of Warcraft. This is, by the way, related somewhat to our topic that we're going to be mm -hmm. covering later uh, later on, which is local and matchmaking co-op games. Yeah. Um, so there are different multiplayer challenges you can do in World of Warcraft. Um, in addition to ordinary quests that you can do on your own. Every now and then you'll come across a quest in the open world that requires one or two or three or five people. Yep. And you have to make a group and defeat one tough enemy together. Unfortunately, it's been my experience in recent times that just because it says three players doesn't mean you need to do it. In fact, a lot of the time, if you know your class well enough, you can effectively solo these quests. Yeah, that's the only right. time that you want it, you'll need a group is in Tanan Jungle, the, the newest uh, part uh, Warlords of Draenor. Well, there's a lot of examples where you really do need a group. Yeah, the, the world bosses in Pandaria, and the world bosses in uh, Tenan right. Jungle. One of those world bosses take how many people? Like 40? Yeah, they take 40. Yeah, you're not going to solo a 40, actually, a 40 player thing. Not for a long time, anyway. Actually. Oh, yeah, somebody did. The yeah, Death Knight? The, yeah, somebody, uh, a Death Knight soloed uh, yeah, Lord Kazakh. That's ridiculous. This is the biggest, baddest dude. In Tanan Jungle, yeah, and there's an achievement for defeating this guy, and this and this Death Knight soloed him. Yeah, that's but apparently incredible. he uh, he had he had to do this several times to capture the full video because uh, people kept running in and uh, smacking it when it was almost dead, so he couldn't uh, take sucks. all the glory for himself. Yeah, that's incredible for this guy. Yeah, that means that one guy had to be as good as forty people, so that ta that takes an incredibly talented guy. Anyway, we are we uh, diverged a little too much. So go ahead. Back okay. to. Uh, Princey, Princey, Prince Boy, Arthas. <laughs> okay. So there are other multiplayer things that you can do in World of Warcraft, as you would expect of a massively multiplayer game. There's something called Dungeons, which means that you team up with four other people, and you kind of go through this uh, this uh, dungeon or other sort of series of challenges. It's usually a bunch of uh, especially difficult, but not too special enemies, known usually as trash mobs, and then the occasional boss, who's like a more difficult person with unique mechanics and is usually in reference to some of the story of the zone um, that precedes the dungeon that uh, takes place at the end of the zone. Mm -hmm. um, so those are usually uh, 
At least in World of Warcraft, you usually have three damage dealers, one healer, and one tank. And the tank is the person who taunts enemies and absorbs all the damage while the damage dealers kind of hit the backs of the enemies and the healer uh, restores the life of the tank and of anyone else that gets hit. Um, so, uh, after dungeons is this thing called raids. And a raid, uh, a raid has between 10, let's just say between, usually between 10 and 25 people all working collaboratively together. In the old, uh, the oldest days of WoW, they also had 40 person raids, and, which were really hard to get going. Yeah, so they and got they also had that. that. Ten, and they also had 20 man raids as well. Oh yeah, that's right. They had 20 man too. But now it's now you can have any number of people between 10 and 25. They've kind of it's not as rigid the requirements. Nothing sucked more than having like 24 people and yelling in town, "We need one more person. We need one more person." And that person always sucked. I know. And you got desperate for anyone to join, and anyone would join, and that person brought down the whole group. So now you can have like an odd number between those amounts. So anyway, a raid is kind of like a dungeon in that you fight. Uh, lesser enemies that are far, far more difficult than one person can reasonably expect to defeat on their own. And then there are especially extremely hard bosses that have the best, uh, they give you the best rewards in the game, and they're the most significant story-wise. Mm -hmm. um, and if you can defeat these bosses, it means that you're working cohesively as a team. And if you defeat them despite despite uh, not working cohesively, you probably just have really damn good gear. Or good luck, or both. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, usually the reward for uh, raids is that you get a chance at a better piece of gear. In games like this, you'll get like a, a weapon or a shield or a shirt or a belt or something, and it will in some way increase your abilities so that you can do more damage or do more healing or absorb more damage, stuff like that. So, um, there had been, I think, 11 raids or something, or 11 tiers of raids in World of Warcraft before I was really interested in it, in raiding. Um, the, the raid that I was interested in, for whatever reason, was one called Ice Crown Citadel, which was the last raid, or the last major raid, of the Wrath of the, Wrath Lich, of the Lich King expansion pack, which is the second expansion for World of Warcraft. Um, and so usually what happens is you have one week, you have one week to clear all the bosses in a raid. They, it resets every Tuesday. Um, unless you extend the raid blackout, which we well, did. Let's, oh yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Okay. We'll get to that later. But typically you have one week to, uh, clear all the bosses in a raid. If you haven't cleared them by the end of the week, then you start all over again and you defeat the same bosses again, which is okay because that's just part of the progression. Like I said, you only have a chance at getting an upgraded piece of gear when you beat a boss. They always drop a few pieces of gear, but it may not necessarily be for you personally. It might be for your teammates, or if you're unlucky, it might be for a class that's just not in the, the raid party at the time. So um, usually uh, a guild or uh, other group of people, maybe you just play with random people, they'll kind of hammer away at it every week and get a little bit farther as the collective gear of every member starts to get a little bit better week by week until you can finally surpass the last boss. So we had been doing Ice Crown Citadel for a few months, I guess. Oh my gosh, so many months. So many months. And, and mostly with the same people, or with at least the, a few of the same people each time, mm -hmm. but it's a bit of a rolling roster. Um, we had a few snags at a few bosses, but um, as we learned the mechanics, and when I say mechanics, let's just say 
Let's give an example. The very first boss is an amazing looking boss in in uh, mm -hmm. Ice Crown Citadel. He's a guy named Mero Lord Marogar. And he's like this is he three headed? He's a three headed uh skeleton that doesn't have any legs and is surrounded by frost fire. Yeah, so he's like this this gigantic bone bony three headed wraith guy with his deep booming voice. He's really cool looking. Mm -hmm. The art design of this place and the music and the animations are all really incredible. This is like the pinnacle of what Blizzard, which is already a very talented studio, this is like the best that they could possibly do. Um, and this is the very first boss mm -hmm. that just blew my mind right off the bat. Yeah. So in this, I'll give a very brief synopsis of this boss. Marogar, um, you start off, everyone attacks him, and the healers heal him, and the tanks uh, draw draw his uh, attention. Mm -hmm. um, then he will uh, summon these bone spikes from the ground, and it will impale two or three people in your party, and they won't be able to move. So the other party members have to stop attacking the boss and then start attacking those spikes that have impaled people until those are destroyed, and that will bring those people back into the game. Um, meanwhile, Marogar is casting these spells that cause the ground to light on fire. It's like this blue frost fire. Um, so you have to make sure that whatever you're doing, you're not standing in that frost fire. And that keeps kind of adding more and more over the course of the fight. Although some of it does go away. Unless... Some of it goes away. Um, and then occasionally uh, he will do his mega attack, which is called Bone Storm where he will start spinning around in a circle, and everyone has to, like, he'll spin around and around with his blades out or whatever. Anyone who's close to him will very quickly get chopped up to death. So you have to make sure that uh, you're not wherever he is. Mm -hmm. But he's not really talkable during this phase. You just run around while the tanks try and keep uh, aggro on him. And then he'll, uh, after about uh, 15 seconds or so, I forget how long Bone Storm lasts, it's like 15 or 20 seconds, he goes back to uh, taunting the, uh, play the, uh, he goes back to uh, hitting the uh, tanks because he's pissed off with them taunting him. That's right. So there's these... calling him names and insulting his mama. That's right. <laughs> so there's these few different mechanics that this boss does. And he'll kind of cycle through those either in order or he'll do a certain attack every two minutes, let's say, which will mix up the order sometimes of what he's doing. But for the most part, you'll know pretty much what he's going to do and when he's going to do it after you've died on him several times and have figured it out. So that's a good example of a WoW boss. And to defeat a boss like this, it means that you have to know um, what your specific role is. If you're a damage dealer, you have to know what you're supposed to be attacking and when. You have to know if you have, like, cooldown effects, uh, cooldown attacks that you can only press this button once every three minutes or so. You have to know what's the right time for you to press that button every three minutes. Because maybe that button improves the abilities of everyone in the whole raid. And if you press it at the wrong time, then that uh, opportunity gets squandered. But if you do it at the right time, then you can do the most damage when the boss is the most vulnerable. So there's a lot of pressure on each individual person. Mm -hmm. The healers might have to know that if the boss says something, it means that they're about to have to heal someone or everyone very quickly. And yes. so they don't need to conserve their uh, healing power for that moment. Mm -hmm. um, and the tanks, I've, I'm, I'm, uh, I don't have the ability, I don't have the uh, talent to be a tank in a raid, really. Because usually there are two tanks, and they have to juggle the boss between them. Yep. One of them will taunt and take a bunch of damage, and that damage will kind of get worse and worse and yeah, worse. The longer in the, the form of stacks, and then you... Right. Uh, the longer the boss is targeted. Yeah, the longer the boss targets one person, the more damage they do to that person. And so the off tank, the other tank, will uh, 
taunt the boss off of the first tank to uh, reset the amount of damage that's being done. And then yeah. you, that person will take more and more until the, the first tank has mm -hmm. to grab him back again. So there's a lot of coordination. It's a real team sport. And if any one person does something dumb or does something by accident or presses the wrong button or is like late. You, like you pull like a uh, Oh, shut up. Your We've all done it. <laughs> We've all done this kind of a thing. But if anyone makes a mistake, basically, everyone dies and you have to start all over again. And this boss fight might take five minutes or it might take ten minutes. Um, but you'll be making a lot of attempts on bosses as you figure out what all the mechanics are and when you as you figure out what you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do. Yeah, and so for ten people to to do something perfectly for five or ten minutes, it's a rare and special thing, and you feel very it's very rewarding once you get to do that. Yep, and even though you may have watched other videos and read the walkthroughs, it's it's another game entirely to actually go in and experience the mechanics yourself. You may be prepared, but you're not prepared to uh, react because you watch someone else do it and they did it flawlessly. Yeah, that's right. And there are strategies that you can watch on YouTube or in uh, text to read to read what you're supposed to do, but you still have to be able to do it. You need to have the memory to know what's going to happen and when, and you need to have the ability to be able to execute the, thing, the specific things that you need to do at the specific times. And it does kind of sound formulaic, and of course it is formulaic, but it's really exciting and rewarding to be able to figure that stuff out for yourself. And once you've figured out how to beat a boss, you'll never forget it. You'll never forget those. You'll you'll have the muscle memory developed, just mm -hmm. like uh, being able to do Mortal Kombat moves. Like after not touching it for five years, is the same kind of thing. So it's kind of a special thing. So anyway, that we just told you about the first boss of the Ice Crown Citadel raid. And there were twelve in total. There are twelve bosses, and it took us quite some time to beat each one. Some were easier than others. Some were really tough. Mm -hmm. Some we got stuck on for weeks. Sinjugosa. That was a really and, tough one. Although when we finally beat her, it was. <laughs> It was our one tank standing there by himself, and I was the last hero standing, and I died, sacrificing myself to keep our tank up. Oh, that's too cool. Yeah, you do have these exciting moments where every time every time somebody dies, everyone has to try a little bit harder. And mm -hmm. so when there's only two of you left, and the boss just has a little bit of health left, it's like as exciting as any, as any sport where mm -hmm. you're in overtime and trying to score a goal. You have a penalty, something like that. Yep. So, um... After several months, we finally got our way up to the Lich King, who is the last boss of the last raid in the expansion pack. He's like the, the big daddy. Yeah. Um, just standing there for the first time was just mind-blowing. It's more here. That's right. So before you get to the Lich King, you have to beat all 11 of the bosses that precede him. So first week we did it, we just died and died and died and died and couldn't get anywhere on him. Next Tuesday rolled around. We killed all 11 bosses again, eventually. Everybody started getting a little bit better gear, but at least we had our strategies down. We got to the Lich King again. Died and died and died and died. Maybe we made it a little farther. Maybe we didn't. Some days we would have some lucky breaks, and some days would be crap. Uh, long, Very long story. Come to an end, anyway. It took us four weeks, three nights a week, and maybe three or four hours per night. So I would say about 12 hours a week for four weeks. So that's like, that's 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 like 50 hours, let's say. After was, 50 hours of practice. Yeah, and that's when we started using the raid lockout to keep us at the end so we didn't have to run the same content over and over just yeah. to get to the end. There were some, you did have some limited options to skip the first 11 bosses and to resume where you were last the last week. That's if you didn't want to... 
If you kill all those 11 bosses every week, then you still have a chance to get the uh, gear drop from all of them. But after a while, everyone has all the gear that they want, and you don't have to worry about that. So there are options. Mm -hmm. So anyway, after about 50 hours, and uh, the aforementioned uh, rage quit by Xandragos, our... Uh, <laughs> our uh, uh, paladin healer, who had done a very good job. Mm -hmm. um, we the, go back to town, we got us one more fill, we got another, uh, we actually got a DPS, because we still had uh, two healers, myself and a uh, restoration chamois. Oh, that's right, Rilea. Mm -hmm. um, so this person that we recruited, he was very confident. He came up, he came on uh, Ventrilo, which is the voice chat uh, service that we used. Uh, he was very confident, and he said, Oh, you guys haven't beaten the Lich King yet? Don't worry, I beat him 20 times, we're going to beat him today. We're going to beat him in, like, two tries. So, this kind of reinvigorated all of us, because we were very weary after four weeks of failure after mm -hmm. failure. Um, but it reinvigorated us. So I think we lost the first the first time, and the, this guy was just utterly uh, utterly cool and calm, and he was like, No problem, uh, I know exactly what happened. We all know what happened, we'll make sure it doesn't happen the next time. Mm -hmm. We're going to beat him now for sure. And lo and behold, we actually did it. We beat him after 50-plus hours or so of trying to kill one single guy. And, like, the feeling of this is... The, I've never had a feeling like this in all of video gaming. Oh, in my whole video gaming mm -hmm. career of 30 years or whatever. Mm -hmm. There's no feeling like beating a guy that has beaten you for 50 hours for a month. And But just before we realized that we had defeated him, there was this universal <laughs> sinking feeling. Because everybody suddenly died at once, and we were like, "Oh no!" Yeah, that's right. That's part of the that's part of the uh, role playing lore of this fight is that once you get uh, the Lich King down to ten percent, he kind of does this super move, and he instantly kills everyone in your party all at the same time. And so, your gut reaction, of course, is that this is just another death, and we did something wrong, and that and you should uh, exit out and uh, resurrect yourself. However, uh, we were warned. Thank goodness. Uh, you don't don't press the uh, release release your spirit button. Whatever you do, don't press that button. It's supposed to happen, and you'll be back. So the guy talks for like three minutes or so. Oh my gosh, longest RP ever. Well, and it's great because it brings resolution to all of the story that's been worked working up to for the whole uh, the whole like hundred hour campaign or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So it's very satisfying stuff. So um, you all get resurrected again, and then the last ten percent of the fight is mercifully the poor Lich King being trapped. Trapped in this thing that just spins him around harmlessly in the air, and you get to take pot shots at him until he takes away you down to death. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, who is it? Uh, for Tyrion Forgering is basically the one who holds him up, and uh, Menethys. Uh, what's his last name? Who? Tyrion Menethys. Menethil. Yeah, Menethil is the one who resurrects everybody. Yeah. And. But this is, and just at that moment, once you realize, when you real, when after that moment of dread, the first moment of dread when you think you've lost, and then we realize that we won, I've never heard, I never heard vent so loud in my life. I know there were ten of us just like cheering our heads off, and that's quite an incredible moment to share with these strangers that you have never met in real life and probably wouldn't. Although we did meet a couple of these people in real life. Well, <laughs> why don't we tell that story in a moment anyway? Well, like, we can tell it now, because that's basically the story of defeating the Lich King. I think I got the drop. Just like any other boss, the very last boss of a raid drops something too, and it's very slightly better than everything else that you mm -hmm. uh, that gets dropped uh, of, the, of the rewards that are dropped. 
So I'm pretty sure it was me. I got some uh, staff that I got to put on my back. My I had a, a hunter, an archer named Cedarkin, and he was the guy who... Hunter weapon. It Everything was... is a hunter weapon in that oh, game. Of that that was, though. It was an agility staff. That was a hunter weapon. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So that's how we killed the Lich King, and that's, that's the story. Mm-hmm. It was very, very, very rewarding. And that was... That fight took... About 15 minutes or so. So this is why it took us a month to kill him. Because it took the coordination of 10 people to make zero mistakes for 15 minutes straight. So that is a hell of an achievement. It took a lot of practice and a lot of dedication and just a lot of talent to get that done. Mm -hmm. So that was one of the most incredible moments in video gaming that I've ever experienced. And that was one of the most difficult achievements that uh, that I've ever accomplished in all of video games. So that was cool. Yep, it was. So as uh, as Bianca mentioned, there was another healer. Bianca was one of the healers for us, mm-hmm. and there was another healer who was actually the same class. Uh, the healer's name was Relea. She was a lady named AJ. Yeah. And AJ played with her husband, uh, Edmund. Yeah. They were a couple of uh, people from Ottawa, man and a wife, and they had kids, and they would manage their kids and put them to bed. And then they were able to play with us. Mm-hmm. Husband was a rogue. Wife was a healer. That's right. <laughs> so very, very nice people. Um, very mild-mannered and sweet people. Very complimentary and calm. They were great teammates. They were talented players. They were very nice people. And we were really happy to be in the guild with them. They were, they were two of the people that made our, our guild evolutions, the guild that we were. So it, they, they were prominent members uh, and a, a big reason why we had the patience and the tolerance to uh, do such difficult challenges together was because uh-huh. they were such nice people. So uh, Bianca and I once went on a road trip to Ottawa, and uh, we mentioned it to AJ and Edmund, and uh, they invited us over. So this would have been our first time meeting with them. So we found their place. They were like quite a bit out of town um, and went over to their place. And they prepared this lovely lunch with, like, way too much food. <laughs> and we got to meet their little kids who were so well-behaved and so sweet. And the older one was quite articulate for her age. Yeah, that's right. The younger one, though, they were both super smiley and mm-hmm. very pleasant and mild the youngest one, The younger one was a little shy. But... Yeah, but very smiley and mm-hmm. sweet. And the older one, I don't remember her name, but they had named her after a protagonist of some fantasy book. Yeah. So these were cool people. So we... Uh, Oh, yeah, Although the we same had... trip we went to Montreal and everything was icy slushy. <laughs> oh, and I and I was that when I got sick. Yeah, and I had to nurse you back to health in yeah. a, a city where nobody would. Half the people don't speak a damn lick of English. That's right. Well, most of them do. Anyway, <laughs> they, they we had such a great time with AJ and Ed. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like I mean we'd spoken online for months, but we just got along so easily when we hung out with them in person. It was a very very pleasant time. And we mm-hmm. talked about the game, but we talked about other stuff too. Very, very nice time. That was an unforgettable experience, meeting mm-hmm. these people for the first time. Really nice people. All right. Uh, that's what, so anyway, that's what you've been playing. Yeah. Anything else you want to mention? Yeah, I actually was uh, decided to uh, level up a healer of mine, a paladin. So, But I looked around, I'm like, I don't want to do more fucking dungeons. And I looked at my uh, stats, I'm going, I don't have any glyphs for retribution or protections. So I'm like, what can I do as a healer? So I went through my stuff. I took out all. I I, re, I created myself an entire build based on skills as a healer that I can do damage with, and I converted one of my heals into a damage into a damage spell. And so I've been uh, soloing uh, 
contact to level up using uh, my healer with this cobbled spec that's basically normally that would normally be healing spells but have been converted to do damage against enemies. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just looking for something while you talk. Yep, so that's the other thing I've been doing and other than that, hmm, nothing particularly special. And now we get to hear about what stupid shit Brian's been playing, but nobody cares about that, do they? Oh, kiss my grits. Alright, so... Is this it? I'll have to find it. Anyway, I was very, very excited about one thing that I got to play uh, today, uh, this, this week, which was the Doom 0.3 Alpha. What a cool thing this was. Um, I'm a huge fan of Doom. I think just about everyone who's come onto my onto the show has been a huge fan of Doom. It's one of the best games of all time, if not the best game of all time. Uh, it's hard to argue that. It's a terrific, terrific game with an awesome engine and amazing art and weapons and maps. Everything about it just works so very, very well. I was really stoked about Doom before I had ever played it because I was already a big fan of id Software's Wolfenstein 3D. Um, and... Uh, when Doom was first announced, or when I first heard of Doom, it was in magazines. And a lot of the scenes that they showed in the magazines were things that never made it into the final game. And I didn't really think much about it again until I uh, checked it out later on in my life. But one scene that really stood out for me was, um, you know, the Doom protagonist is just a space marine dressed in this green uh, spacesuit kind of a thing. It looks really cool. Um, and in this first screenshot that was notable for me, it showed you uh, standing and like you, uh, you in the first person standing around with three of your buddies, and those three buddies were also wearing the green Doom guy space uh, suit. They're standing around a table playing cards together, and you could see cards on the table. And this was pretty. Those are cards. Yeah, this is pretty high tech stuff for the day. This was like I guess 1991 or so, 1990. I guess it must have been about 91. Um, it was pretty high-tech, just seeing the, the textures on the walls and the ceilings and the, the high-resolution sprites of the different people, and have there being enough resolution to actually see, like the 12 pixels or so that made up the cards on the table. That was really, really cool stuff. And so, I guess what struck me was not only this amazing engine in this 3D space where you're standing and participating in the first person, but also the fact that there's... Um, there's this kind of uh, promise of some sort of a story or a setting or a context for you to be there because you're standing there with other people that are like your equals and you're playing cards together. I sort of kind of thought in my mind a little bit what could be what, what could be the story, what could be the setting. I uh, often did this daydreaming about screenshots while I read my uh, beloved computer magazines. Um, and so, lo and behold, that scene was removed. Most of the stuff from the screenshots was removed. The uh, guns and the UI were all totally revamped. And we have the Doom that we all know and love and still play to this day, I'm sure. I, I certainly do. Um, so, just this week, version 0.3 of this Doom Alpha was released. And this is the version of Doom that contained that scene with your buddies standing around the card table. That's kind of where you spawn in to the first of the ten levels that you can load into, nine or ten. Um, I'd never seen this in motion, and this was absolutely amazing. It also had like some uh, kind of tongue-in-cheek introductory stuff, like obviously by a very young game development team, and they're showing this to journalists or to just a, an inside privileged few. 
Um, so it's not completely polished. And the game itself isn't really polished. You do have a few guns that can fire, although they have unlimited ammunition, and firing your guns make no impact on the environment. Um, there are some basic levels, none of which seem to have made it into the final game. And there are enemies which look like the final versions of the enemies, almost identically and perfectly, if not, if not unchanged by the end. And they're just kind of standing there doing idle animations, and you can shoot at them if you want to, but it doesn't hurt them or kill them, or make any impact. And they don't really come after you or anything, they just kind of stand in place. So it's really just a tech demo. But... Uh, all of a sudden, I felt like I was like I was a little kid again, look, reading those magazines as I went through these environments. Very, very cool experience. Um, I couldn't find it just now, but I'll be sure to put the link in the show notes because it is executable. I think it was self-executable, or, or did I do it in DOSBox? I don't remember. But that was a real privilege to check that out and to see the old user interface the way it was. I'm glad they made the changes they did, but uh, it's a really cool bit of the story. Oh, and. Um, Seeing that scene, like, it, I, I can't say enough, like, what an impressionable scene that was, you standing around at the card table with your friends. I got some more context about that when I read this book, The Masters of Doom, by David Kushner, who says, I believe that was one of the, uh, that was uh, par the participation of a guy named Tom Hall, who was a member of id Software and was a big proponent of story in games. Uh, and that was about the time where id was kind of moving away from story in games. They wanted their games to be pure arcadey action and adrenaline and didn't really care too much about why you were there or what you were accomplishing. They just were, they were interested in the here and now and the experience of, of you playing their game. And Tom Hall was kind of starting to feel a little bit squeezed out. And so he had done this whole big design document for... Uh, Doom, which had given it context and story and characters and motivations and stuff like that. And it was becoming more and more evident that his teammates were not interested in that aspect of the game at all. And it was soon after that Tom Hall left id Software, after a very good career with them for several years before he moved on to do some other stuff like uh, Rise of the Triad, which is a, a somewhat similar first-person shooter. And that's a wildly creative game. And that is just an awesome game, Rise of the Triad. I really do recommend checking out the original DOS version of that. So anyway, that's that's the Doom 0.3 Alpha, which I will most certainly stick into the show notes. Um, another game that I wanted to talk about. Hi. Birds everywhere. Uh, and the Conyer, too. Yeah. So another game I wanted to talk about. I played uh, Bianca and I played this together earlier in the week. This was a game called Contradiction. Similar in that, similar to her story in that it's uh, recording using people and uh, what, 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 what kind of game is this called? A uh, Full motion video? Yeah, full motion video. Yeah, that's a really old-fashioned term from like the, the genesis of, of uh, like video, recorded video in games. Uh, but uh, I don't mind throwing that term around. Mm -hmm. um, so it's another kind of murder mystery sort of a game. It does have some parallels to her story, just in that you were the person, you were the detective trying to uh, piece together evidence in order to, to uh, solve a mystery. However, um, it's more along the lines of a point and click adventure in that you're walking more. around and you're trying to find, you have to find clues and, uh, and connect uh, the dots and to figure, find out who's being a little lying bastard. That's right. It was, I think it was kind of similar most of all to Phoenix Wright in its structure mm -hmm. because 
you have a defined character, and you can see your character in the game every now and then. Like, it shows your character speaking and saying things to people. Mm -hmm. And although this is a full-motion video game where you are walking around the environment and picking things up, it's really merciful in terms of the editing. There aren't these extended scenes of you brushing your hair or picking something up, like picking up a flashlight like you've never seen one before and turning it over and stuff. Oh, what's this? Whoa. Putting you it in your pocket and your, stuff. And you, you pick up fast, and you're like, this would be handy, and you just put it in your pocket. Yeah, the editing has a really <clears> good <throat> sense of brevity, which is respectful of the viewer, I think. It's mm -hmm. for it's something that I appreciated, having always been a fan of full motion video games. Um, the editing really keeps it nice and snappy. Yeah, a couple of times you look at an object a little more closely, but it's because you haven't seen it before, and it makes sense. Yeah, or the, if, yeah, if, you're, if it's spending time on, if the camera's spending time on something, it's because there's a reason for it. It doesn't mince words, so I do appreciate that a lot. So this is a game where primarily what you do is you walk around the environment, you observe uh, whether something in the environment has changed, and it's not really you, the player, using your deductive uh, reasoning. It's usually there will be like a little magnifying glass that shows up in the corner of the screen if there's something for you to see, and you press the look button, and then your character like makes a beeline for it and holds it up and looks and shows it to you. So. The actual exploration isn't really part of the game, but you do get to walk around, and the cinematography and the locations are beautiful. It's this uh, English town uh, somewhere. I don't know. It's a little English town. It's very charming. Beautiful scenery, beautiful houses. Very, very charming. Um, so primarily what you do is you speak to people, and you interview them. You ask them questions about the things you know, and if you picked up some objects, then you ask them about the objects, and they'll give you new information. And or they might even give you a new object. Or they'll give you a new object, that's right, which you can then ask everyone about. And it's really the kind of game where you're exhausting the dialogue trees. You want to show everything to everyone, just in case. Mm -hmm. But there is more. There is some logic to it. Yeah. It's mostly logical. Every now and then, what you'll do is just show everything to everyone, and that'll kind of get you unstuck. Yeah. Although, fortunately, it's forgiving in that it'll, it'll tell you if, something, if there's no point in showing something to somebody. Which doesn't happen in Phoenix Wright. Like, you basically just show everything to everybody... Mm without any differentiation in whether or not the person may have an inkling of what it is. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So you as the you as the protagonist know when it's not worthwhile to show something irrelevant to someone. For example, um, the flashlight. You don't want it tells you that nobody's interested right. in stupid flashlights. People know what a flashlight is. Or this person wouldn't know about that, so you don't bother asking them. Mm -hmm. I, I appreciate that. Or it's you shouldn't ask this person about this right now because they'll get upset or something. Mm -hmm. So mainly what you're doing is you interview people and as they say things to you um, you keep point form notes automatically about what they've said to you. And then you can compare those point form notes of one conversation versus another, trying to point out contradictions. So if someone has said something earlier that is in contravention with something that they've just told you now, then you navigate to that note and you press enter and it puts it in your on the interface. And then you navigate to the other note that contradicts it and you press enter and it puts them both together. And if they turn green, then it means you've successfully found a contradiction and you'll confront the person about it. And then they'll clarify or they'll explain why they lied to you or why what they're saying is uh, inconsistent. Mm -hmm. um, the characters are good. The acting is good. Like I said, the scenery is lovely. Um, the music is amazing. And the music comes, I think, in MP3 or AUG formats with the game, which is terrific because I've listened to it again since. It's really beautiful orchestral movie style music. Uh, the sets are great. The dialogue is great. The writing is great. Uh, the ending is so-so. Mm -hmm. It's a little unsatisfying. A little unsatisfying. This was a Kickstarter project. 
unbelievably, the Kickstarter was for 3,000 British pounds, which is nothing. It's largely a one-man project. It's a guy who is like a, a, a film producer, and he's worked on TV commercials and shows and some movies and stuff like that. He knows how to do camera work and editing and sound and stuff like that. He did most of this stuff himself, and he taught himself computer programming to make this vision of his come to life, which is super cool. He did an amazing job of delivering a very polished product on a tiny budget, which mm -hmm. is just awesome. He knows how to manage a project and mm -hmm. how to balance his fun. Yeah, even if the ending wasn't the most... Uh it wasn't the best. It was overall a beautiful game and definitely worth playing even if the ending was not as satisfying as it could have been. Mm -hmm. It's worth just to play just to uh, hear these characters speak. They all have very distinct personalities. They all talk their own, in their own way. So you don't feel like it's like one character type throughout. Everyone has their own little quirks and uh, you can kind of see that every character is different in their own special way. Yeah, there is some depth and, to the characters, yeah. which I And appreciate. some characters you think you can kind of tell when they, what if they're if they're actually going to be lying about something, or if you don't think that they're lying, it's one of those. It's very interesting to to try and guess when somebody is lying to you, That's and then right. you have to figure out how you're going to catch them that lie because you may not get that information right away. Yeah, and that's sometimes for better or for worse. Sometimes you know someone's lying to you, but you can't quite find the two things to click to prove it. So there is a a little bit of uh, kind of fighting the designer to figure out how to do what you know to be true. And other times you'll, uh, it will be two seemingly inconsequential things that are, uh, that are in conflict and you wouldn't have really thought to do that. There are in, uh, there are in-game hints and there are walkthroughs as well. And unfortunately, and as I mentioned last week, a few red herrings, a few red herrings, of course. And I kind of get the impression that the guy ran out of money and wanted to tell more of a story. So instead just kind of ended it. But it's okay, because what the ending is lacking, it, like the, the rest of the game really makes up for. Mm -hmm. So this game, I think, cost us nine bucks, and we played it for seven hours, which is an unbelievable value. And it was kind of unique enough and engaging and engrossing enough that it was very well worth the money. I probably would have paid twice what I paid for the experience that we had. A lot of laughs, a lot of characters that you'll really hate, mm -hmm. a lot of characters that you'll reform your opinions of because of the the way that the plot unfolds so uh, contradiction is what it's called it's a very surprisingly well uh, polished full motion video game with really great cinematography yeah. and writing and acting and unlike her story Simon isn't dead in this one. <laughs> oh, I don't remember it well enough oh yeah Simon <laughs> Yeah, it's been weeks since I played that. You can't expect yeah. me to remember things about it. Yeah, the only reason I'm laughing is because they're both English games, and, they're, and they both have a character named Simon. Yeah, I know. I think there's there might be one or two Simons <laughs> over in Limey Town. Yeah, and Simon says, try contradiction. Right. Yes, he does. Simon also says that that's all the games I have to talk about this week. Mm -hmm. All right, so why don't we get on to our topic? So as I mentioned, our topic this week is local co-op games and whatever. It's, it's co-op games, games mm -hmm. that you can play collaboratively as opposed to competitively with another person. Mm -hmm. um, so we already talked about a couple of them. World of Warcraft was one of them, which we mentioned earlier, which I think is a good example of something you can play co-op. I wouldn't necessarily call it uh, local co-op, but, but I think it would be more matchmaking with given that they now have Dungeon Finder and Raid Finder, as well as uh, custom grouping for different quests where you can find a group through the through the game's interface without having to yell and trade chat 
Looking for a group, LFG. Yeah, thank goodness World of Warcraft and most other massively multiplayer games make it a lot easier now to group up with other people. It used to be a real chore. And, yeah, it's, it's far better nowadays than it's ever been. Um, I'm just looking at our list. We don't have a lot of old, old stuff on our list, but we have some moderately old stuff. Um, yeah, I think I think one of the older one, ones might be Katamari. We played it, we tried it a few times to do a co-op. And this is... Uh, a little interesting because you're playing on the same screen and as you know if you already if you've heard us talk about Katamari before you know that you're the prince and you're pushing around your uh, intergalactic space ball to pick up uh, human trash to eventually make a star planet for daddy king that he can throw in the cosmos to repair the fact that he went on a drunken rampage and knocked all the stars out of the sky oh that's a very good synopsis <laughs> yes so to do to, for this one this is definitely a local co-op because you're both playing on the console together or in our case, on an emulated uh, PS2, mm -hmm. and so essentially you uh, you both are pushing the ball in the same direction, and this requires team coordination because sometimes you want to speed up if you want to roll up a hill. Okay, and if, so they're like the two of you are pushing one ball, mm -hmm. as opposed to each of you having your own autonomous characters. You're actually working collaboratively to push a single thing together, which is pretty infuriating, and it really takes a lot of verbal communication. Yeah, and. Uh, just takes a lot out of you to be uh, to not yell at the other person for being a jackass and uh, not going in the right direction. That's right. It kind of reminded me a little bit of summer camp when I was younger. <laughs> I was always good at boating, and I loved kayaks because it was a one-man craft, and you wherever you want to go, you just go there. Mm -hmm. My least favorite was canoes because there are two of you, at least, in a canoe, and you both have to work together to go where you want to go. And... You know, I hate people. People are, are dick faces. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to have to work out with another person. So I would invariably sit in the back of the canoe. The, the person in front was propulsion, and the person in back was steering for the most part. And so all I really had to tell the other person to do was which side of the canoe to paddle on. So this sort of reminded me a little bit of that. That was a very Canadian story, wasn't it? Oh, that was so Canadian. <laughs> so uh, this, that's sort of what Katamari Damasi reminded me of a little bit, because the two of you are kind of equals, and you both have to press your... Two joysticks in the same direction, more or less, to yeah. accomplish the same thing. Yeah. It's very hard and very clunky and like just very difficult to actually do the things you're intending to do. Yeah, it's I don't think we played it for long, did we? No, but we gave it a try because you were because I know that that you wanted to play something multiplayer, and it was the only thing we could think of at the time. Mm -hmm. But then, but I know that we were also playing Titan Quest around then. Unfortunately, it ate our older computers for breakfast. Oh, it sure did. I seem to remember playing the demo for Titan Quest. I think it was a GeForce 440 or 4400 or something like that. Uh, it really demolished my, my video card at the time, that demo. And it wasn't long until I upgraded my machine and was absolutely amazed by how good that game looked. Mm -hmm. And in fact, running that game nowadays, it's still a beautiful game. And in fact, because you can run it at full detail at full resolution, it's actually it looks pretty. It actually looks much better than it. Uh, it looks. It actually looks pretty good considering that it's a uh, two a game from two thousand and six. Yeah, it's a ten year old game now, and it looks really, really good even to this day. Great design. I've always called Titan Quest Ragdoll Diablo, and that's before Diablo had the ragdoll physics on its own. But uh, before that, it was just like sprites or three D models with. Shut up, bird. Really? You shut that up. What's the matter? Go wave at it, will you? Oh, that was a, you that was a big wave. Every, there we go. Good. <laughs> Pardon us, birds. Um, 
So, yeah, Diablo 1 and 2 and similar games of the action RPG genre had pre-rendered or uh, uh, pre-organized animations. Um, whereas Titan Quest, uh, you would hit someone and there would be an impact. So that if you kill someone, you, you kill a monster, then depending on how much damage you've done will affect kind of how far away you fling that person away. And then they would kind of flumble all around the environment with ragdoll physics. Yeah. Which or was if you really... hit them hard enough, they might even explode depending on how you uh, That's demolish right. them. That's right. And one unique thing about Titan Quest versus the other kind of Diablo-style games was that every piece of gear and armor and weapons that a, a monster was carrying, they would all drop from every enemy. So, like, whereas in Diablo, maybe you kill eight mace-wielding goblins, and between them all, one mace will drop. In Titan Quest, if you fight eight mace-wielding goblins, eight different maces will drop, and so will their hats and their pants. Yeah. So the, the place just gets littered with loot, which is super cool. And thank goodness there were filters that, you know, you hold down a button and it will only show you <laughs> the best of that stuff. But that was a really cool differentiator. There were mm -hmm. a few cool differentiators about that one. Plus it was steeped in like Greek mythology for the Oh, most yeah. Part. And you were the Greek hero. You really did feel like the uh, ultimate uh, Greek hero, you know, the uh, Achilles type or uh, home, or no, what was it? The Odysseus. Mm-hmm. So you're going on the big kind of mm -hmm. Odyssey sort of a... Yeah, and then co-op was fun because uh, you had your choice of your primary and secondary class, which means that you, that, no, that uh, you could coordinate so your gear and your uh, stuff didn't overlap and you had... Stop flying into the drapes, so uh, you have so you could maximize and spread out your types of damage. So in case one of you couldn't uh, damage an enemy significantly, the other person would be able to. If the, the enemy had resistance to say frost, and you were and you were in one of your main attack types was uh, ice. Mm hmm. Although it seems like every time we would co-op that game, you would be three times more powerful than me, and I don't know how that kept freaking happening. But every single damn time, your character is way stronger than mine, and I just sit around twiddling my thumb. Da, 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 while well, it's because you insisted on having, on having two Beastmaster specs cobbled into one and sending in these little piddling things while I'm going in there with uh, my yeah, kitchen utensils spec. That's right. You were like the mix master in, our, in plate armor. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So she was a she was like a dual wielding slice master, and I uh, I was some kind of like a dream world uh, beast master that had all these different pets that would run all over the place and oh. nibble people to death. And I like the pet classes. So much aggro, though. Yes, it did. I like the pet master classes. I always have. Maybe they don't kill things the fastest, but uh, they keep the damage away from you. And if yeah, you and heal make, the pets, it does then, make things interesting. Yeah, it does. Sometimes too interesting. Mm -hmm. But yeah, these but this but these games were pretty interesting, and definitely worth the uh, combing every inch of the map. That way, you got every quest, and you could find uh, like just that one piece of hidden gear that would make such a big difference. The maps were huge in Titan Quest too. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of oh, just to, to give another Canadianism, we used to call that zambonying. Yep. <laughs> where you would uh, kind of zamboni all over the map. Look it up, people. I'm gonna put I'll put another show notes zamboni. <laughs> Not Zambino, Zamboni. Yeah. So yeah, we you, we would we would just uh, uncover every little pixel of of the map because you discover the map by walking in that 
vicinity. Yep, and that's how you would find some of the big nice chests that just contained the really good gear that suddenly made a difference for your class. Yeah, that's right. So that was a really rewarding, very fun game with huge customize customizability. It was it was quite unique to be able to choose not only a primary class but also a secondary class, and mm -hmm. then you could pick whichever from the talent uh, trees. You could choose whichever talents and skills you wanted to. So there were vastly different builds of the same combinations of things. That was really cool. Very good game. Yeah, and then depending on the order that you even did your uh, two classes in, it would dictate what what uh, you uh, focused on because it just there was like so many different ways to make combinations that uh, there was no, that you could you could act, you could avoid real overlap and uh, even have more people playing than just the two. Yeah, well, I, I forget, did, I forget yeah. how many people you could have. I think you could have up to four. You're probably right. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we uh, did Titan Quest and it's uh, and we also did the uh, sequel, Immortal Throne, both of which were amazing and both of which had amazing end bosses. In Titan Quest, in the first Titan Quest. Oh, I hated that end boss in the first Titan Quest. I don't remember the end boss of the second of the expansion, but in the original, the, I just remember that boss being this huge friggin' guy, and he would basically one shot you no matter what you did, and. You, if you wanted to get back into the fight, you had to run up this gigantic staircase, and it took forever. Well, and I did that like to run up. You're, times. you're fighting on top of Mount Olympus. Well, it pissed me the hell off, because I ran up that thing like 35 times by the time he was dead. I would hit him once if I was lucky, and he would kill me. It was very annoying. And then you realized that all the shrines were up there, and you could use those. No, I'm pretty sure I, I, well, I when you're getting one shot, it doesn't really matter if you can heal yourself. You're at 100% health, and you're at 0% health, mm -hmm. with little opportunity to do much about it. So I found that, that was a huge difficulty spike in an otherwise pretty well-managed game. So I either I spec myself totally wrong, or I don't know what. I think that was just poor game design, because nothing really prepared me for that fight. Although when we went in together, we didn't do too badly. Yeah. Well, we beat him anyway. And then, yeah, that guy really pooped out a lot of money and gear and stuff, didn't oh, he? He had God. this, like, bubble or something that you click, and then yeah. it explodes and then, oh, into this, just a shower so of stuff gear. all over the screen. And then you would go on to the next one, eventually going all the way into Hades. One of the things you had to cross was the River sticks. That's right. Oh, that had an amazing, like, dark bluish neon purple color palette. Mm -hmm. That was a beautiful game. Both of them are beautiful. But whereas the first game was kind of, like, golden and sunshiny and lush, the expansion was like dark and purple and neon colored mm -hmm. and all like deathly and spooky, ghosty, skeletony. Yeah, because in the first one, you you go up to Mount Olympus. That's where your your end objective is. Whereas in the second one, your your objective is Hades. Mm -hmm. So that was just really more of the same. It added uh, one or two new classes, mm -hmm. which uh, gave you a lot more flexibility once again. I think it it updated the user interface and I think it allowed for. Uh, some UI mods as well. Yeah. Well, for uh, uh, that was a pretty highly moddable game, but we never played it with the mods because mm -hmm. the game itself was so great. That was by a uh, now defunct studio called Iron Lore, which previously, I think, some of the people had previously made like Age of Mythology or Age of Empires or something. The music people and the graphics people, uh, and they moved on from Microsoft, I think, to make to be to uh, join Iron Lore to mm -hmm. found Iron Lore. And then that game didn't sell very well initially, and so they had to disband. Mm -hmm. And that was one of those games with a good long tail where people just kept buying it more and more and more over time. And now it's not 
uncommon to find those games, uh, the, the game and its sequel sold for like $3.75 or something, and it's so worth it. Yep. I do remember the netcode being a little bit buggy. Yeah. So sometimes one one of our games would crash or our games would go out of sync and then uh, it would uh, disconnect us and we'd have to reconnect. But yeah. as long as one person stayed in the game, then we didn't really lose any progress. Yeah. It, it seemed that usually I was uh, more stable for this game. I think you were the one hosting and it was the person who joined. Uh, it was riskier and that person had a chance of exiting out. Mm-hmm. Although when you hosted, for some reason, we both crashed. Yeah, you and I have had some some difficulties with uh, with uh, local co-op every now and then. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we had so many difficulties with local co-op that it would be more stable to play internet co-op yeah. and endure the two hundred millisecond latency, even though we were sitting on the same land right next to each other. Mm -hmm. Similar to Titan Quest was Torchlight in its second in its second one, Torchlight Two, which is which we actually have modded because. The uh, resurrection points were just so brutally unforgiving. Yeah, that's right. Well, I think, yeah, the original Torchlight, I don't think that was co-op, was it? I think that was a single-player game. I think so. I don't remember. It was, I have to look it up. I don't remember the name of the team that made, oops, Torchlight. Um, this is killing me. I'm going to look them up. Um, this is another kind of Diablo clone. Runic Games. That's the. Those are the guys. I think some of them were uh, ex-Blizzard people who had worked. I think they were from Blizzard North, and they had worked on the original Diablo game. Um, mm -hmm. They made a game called Fate, which was very much like Diablo. You just kept going down, like you would. You would clear a level and then go down a level, and then clear the whole map and go down a level, and you would just keep going down and down and down. I think infinitely. Um, Picking up loot and uh, customizing your class and getting better and better gear and stuff like that. That was just kind of like a, a treadmill of loot and killing. And still a good game, but not a lot of structure. It was just a bunch of randomized maps. Um, Torchlight was extremely similar to Rune. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that Rune added that Diablo didn't have was that you had a pet that would follow you around. And I think you could give inventory items to your pets and mm -hmm. send your pets to go sell stuff. Yep. Or to have... And could they buy stuff in the first one? I know that they Maybe. could uh, buy stuff in the second one and bring back potions and uh, scrolls. Maybe. Well, I'm talking about Rune, which mm. came before Torchlight. Then Torchlight came out, and it was almost identical to Rune. Um, am I getting the name right? Rune? Oh, it's pissing me off. I don't know. Okay. It's called something like that. Um, so Torchlight was almost identical to their previous game, whatever it was called. I'm sure I'm getting it wrong. Yeah. Um, and uh, then, uh, I think, oh, actually, Torchlight, I think, had, like, a small campaign, but it also had, like, an endless loot dungeon treadmill kind of a mode in it as well. Mm -hmm. um, it was very good as well. Good classes and good enemies and nice animation, a really nice bright color palette, a little similar to World of Warcraft in its kind of simplistic but nicely stylized worlds and enemies. Yeah. And then Torchlight 2 came. And that was more like the Diablo games in terms of there being a great big, I don't know if I'll call it an open world, but a great big explorable world with a yeah. series of maps where you try to get from beginning to end. And unlike uh, most of the other, most unlike Diablo and uh, Titan Quest, it, it actually did mark your destination on the map for the most part. Oh yeah, if, that's if you right. had a uh, quest in your. Uh, in your zone, you could it would uh, mark it so you could uh, explore everything around it and then go to it. Yeah, it had some little refinements. I think Torchlight 2 came out around the same time as Diablo 3. Yeah. 
And so Diablo 3 was considered to be a more rigid, a little bit more of a rigid game with less customization, and they made it easier to uh, respect your character and to undo changes that you made, whereas Torchlight 2 was a game where the choices that you make are more permanent. And uh, if you make a character, then you kind of design your character to be a certain way, and that's your character. It's not something malleable. It's something that's rigid, and uh, your guy is your guy and has an identity. Mm-hmm. You, you And it to change it, you had to pay, or you could get mods to uh, make it free. You had to get mods. I think in Torchlight 2, you could undo, like, your last three levels of changes or something. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Diablo 3, you can change everything about your... every customization you've ever made to your character at a yeah. whim. Except you couldn't do it in combat, and you right. couldn't level up in combat either. Right. Right. So Torchlight 2 is a very good game. And once again, one of those where you whined incessantly because... Yes, because my guy was way wussier than yours yet again. Yeah. I don't get it. I don't freaking get it. And I, think... I let you pick the class, and you picked the class I've been playing, and somehow you managed to still be wussier than me. I know. I was a big wuss. It's one of those games where if you play it solo, you think you're doing great, and then you team up with someone else, and they've done something that optimizes their character far better than yours, and they make you feel completely inadequate. The only game like this, I think, that we played where my character was better than yours mm-hmm. was Dungeon Siege. Yeah. Because Dungeon Siege 1, I had this awesome warrior. It was like a two-handed warrior character. And then eventually I got this skill that... Every time I hit an enemy, I would hit two other enemies in, like, a cone in front of me for exactly the same damage. So I could kill three guys at the same speed that anyone else could kill one guy. My character's name was Marvin. <laughs> Everybody called me Marvin. I'm like, that took me a while to get used to. That was a great name. <laughs> that was a fantastic game. I loved Dungeon Siege. Yeah, that was a good one. That had good matchmaking because we could play with our, with each other and we could play with people around the world. Mm-hmm. And we did. I talked about this a little bit on the... A previous episode, but I talked about Nano from Japan oh, and yeah. Jeremy from the States, who we suspected couldn't spell his own name correctly. <laughs> but he was the nicest guy, and we played a bunch of games with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else? Well, we mentioned Diablo 3, so why don't we talk about that a little bit? Is there much to say that we haven't already said about the other similar games? Mm, not that much, although uh, this was one that uh, you hadn't uh, gotten the max tune in before I did. Yeah, that's right. I lost, I lost interest in this game for a long time. Um, I finished the game. You finished the game, mm-hmm. and then there were subsequent difficulties. Um, so you can finish the game without getting your guy to the maximum level, which was what eighty. Uh, sixty and seventy. Okay, sixty. I finished the game at level thirty something, and started the next level, and just really didn't care. This was back when it was. Uh... The old, the old Diablo style of uh, difficulties before they introduced the uh, scalable torment. Well, the big reason why I lost interest in that game was because they had introduced the idea of the auction house. Mm-hmm, that was where so stupid. This is a single. This is essentially like re- mostly a single player game, or a game you know that has a beginning, middle, and an end. It's a linear game that you do these levels in order, and everyone who plays the game does the same levels in order. You really have your own experience. Uh, and it's separated from everyone else. However, Blizzard decided because there was this kind of black market of people who would join, they would like find a great weapon, advertise on eBay, and uh, then join a multiplayer game with somebody, and that person would pay for this item. And then, if they're not getting scammed, then the the, per- the seller would drop the weapon, and the other person would pick it up, and that would be the end of it. 
So there's this black market for items in Diablo 2. And maybe in Diablo 1, but not that I knew of. Mostly in Diablo 2. So Blizzard said they want to own this, they want to make the money off of it, and they want to have this controlled environment where if you pay something, you're guaranteed to receive what you paid for. Because there was a lot of scamming and stuff like mm -hmm. that going on. So yeah. they added this auction house to the game. And it wouldn't have been so bad if it, if it had used the gold like World of Warcraft does, but instead they had to use real world currency. Well, they had a gold auction house and they had a real money auction house. Mm -hmm. But this is the kind of a game where the further you are in the game, like if you play on the higher difficulties, you get exponentially more money. So uh, everything, anything you could possibly buy was if you were just like a legitimate single player game who played it uh, on your own terms. If you wanted to buy something from the auction house, it would be worth a hundred times more money than you'd ever seen and you ever had, just for like a pair of pants, which was ridiculous. So there's no way you could ever buy anything because the longer the auction house was in existence, the more everything cost. Mm -hmm. It was only for people who were actively selling and using the auction house all the time. Um, also, it meant that the drop rate of gear was substantially lower than it had ever been before. So really, the game was optimized. Like as you played the the more uh, the higher difficulty levels, it was unbelievably difficult if you didn't have gear from the auction house. So this is gear that you artificially obtain not through gameplay but by like the meta game that's external to the narrative of the game. So I I just found it punishingly difficult uh, on the second. Uh, I guess it was expert. Was that the the one above normal? Yeah, in the original, not in the original, but yeah. Oh, it was, yeah. So, I wasn't getting anywhere. I was totally pissed off. I couldn't stand it. I put the game away for about a year. Until they got rid of the auction house. Mm -hmm. And this, we should mention, by the way, dialing it back, this is a game where we were both accepted into the beta. Yeah. Because Blizzard has a beta program, and if you're, if you're really lucky, then they accept you into the beta. So we both got into the beta. Mm -hmm. And we played it together a bunch, and it was a lot of fun. It was like the first of four areas in the game was it yeah it was the beta it was a lot of fun and we had a lot of fun playing that solo and co-op and we tried pretty much all the classes yeah and, and you got you... and actually there was uh, rewards for having uh, played the beta with every single class all the way through oh yeah well superficial rewards yeah achievements, achievements. achievements they're still achievements and uh, i like that yeah yeah because it meant that it's you... something mm -hmm. it's recognition anyway it sets you apart so that's cool there's some cosmetic things that beta testers got in the game, too, which mm -hmm. is kind of neat. Um, but I guess they didn't have the auction house in the beta, or we didn't pay attention to it, because you were so low level. So we didn't... I had such high hopes for the game. I thought it was going to be absolutely awesome. And when I saw the terrible impact that the auction house had on the game, it totally took the wind out of my sails, and I completely stopped caring about it entirely. Yeah, and uh, didn't the auction house run into its own set of problems with uh, scams and price fixing or something? I don't remember anymore. You might be right. There was a huge, there was a, a huge problem with the uh, market or something in the way that people conducted themselves, and that there were exploits that these people kept taking advantage of or something that resulted in the Liz taking it down, we try and fix it, and ultimately scrapping it. It sounds familiar. It sounds familiar. I don't remember the details anymore. It feels like forever ago. But anyway, Blizzard's line was that it they felt that they had undermined the like uh, risk-reward cycle of what it means to play Diablo by having the auction house. They figured out after a year what everyone had told them was the problem, which was that Diablo is supposed to be about killing a great monster and getting a great reward for it, not for 
killing a hundred great monsters and buying a reward. That's mm -hmm. really silly. Don't read my instant messages, lady. <laughs> I was curious what went brungus. Hi, Shannon. Um, so, yeah, so they said that for the good of the game, they would get rid of the auction house. And, of course, it was the right thing to do. It took them long enough, but it was the right thing to do. And it's a great game. I just read recently that it was... Um, let me look this up. I don't want to get my statistics wrong. You wouldn't want to be that part of thought. Yeah. I just saw this on Forbes. Diablo 3 is now the 10th best-selling video game of all time. Which is a hell of a thing. I mean, it's been out for a PC for a while. It later came out for, uh, yeah. for a console. They've sold 30 million copies of Diablo 3. I know someone who has a Diablo 3 tattoo. Shannon's friend Paul has a Diablo 3 Malfeon tattoo. This game is a big what? deal. That is so stupid. And it kind of snuck up on everybody because it was so poorly received between the auction house and the uh, online authentication issues because this is a game, even if you're playing single player, you must play online. DRM. It's DRM and it was like an anti-cheating thing as well. True, but Which when makes sense for multiplayer, but who cares if you're a single player and you're cheating? It should be your right to cheat if you want to. That's how some people get their kicks. Yeah, but... Uh... It was, but I think that they had, but I think that the anti-cheating thing was important, given the rampant cheating in multiplayer in Diablo 2 that uh, I, that uh, tarnished the experience for a lot of people. That's very true. Cheaters really did ruin the multiplayer experience of Diablo 2 for a lot of people. So I'm glad that they managed that anyway. Mm -hmm. So it's unbelievable to think that they've that they came from that very tarnished reputation and turned it into the tenth best-selling game of all time. Yeah. And it's not an old game. It could climb the ranks even more. What's next on that list? Did I close it already? Super, new Super Mario New Boy. Super Mario Brothers. That was for Wii, I think? Mm-hmm. No, that was for DS, I think. Uh, DS, probably. Huh. Yeah, so Diablo 3 has sold 30 million. New Super Mario Brothers is 30.7 million. Diablo 3 could definitely climb the ranks and sell better than that game. Mm-hmm. It's really, really quite something. Jeez, Grand Theft Auto 5 sold 52 million copies. That's unbelievable. I'm not surprised that there. That was a really good game. That's a game with uh, a lot of replayability, especially if uh, you decide to do things. If you decide to try and do the heist differently. That's what I thought, but I got what halfway through that game after replaying it again, and yeah. I got really tired of it. I think you need to give it more time. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, because you were playing it like right afterwards, and that's not not right after, but a month or two after. Yeah, yeah you're probably right. I think it needs like six months or a year before you go back to it because I'm it's sure a long right. game and then that way you don't remember anything. That's true. That is a very good game. We played that at co-op a little bit, sort of. Mm -hmm. we, we, we played that multiplayer. We tried. It took quite some doing to get into our own private game with nobody else because we had fun playing Grand Theft Auto 4 co-op. We it's would just smash around and... Shoot each other. <laughs> I thought we were going to co-op it, but you turned that into PvP pretty quickly, usually. You well, shoot I, was shoot I shot a car, I exploded you, you shot me, and then uh, turned into PvP. You're you're making it sound a lot more uh, logical and understandable than it was. I seem to remember your, I don't know, your female hormones or something, angering up the blood, and you just felt like smashing your husband after a short while. Oh, it's not like you didn't try to run me over. Oh, eventually. So Grand Theft Auto Five, we did a few. Well, it wasn't really co-op, was it? We just did mild PvP stuff. I wouldn't even call that a co-op game. There is, uh, there are some like multiplayer heists. But we where, didn't do those. Instead, what did we do? We played tennis and golf. Yeah, which were uh, so which fun. Yuppie. Yeah, they weren't co-op. Those were competitive. So we'll skip that anyway. Yep. What should we talk about next? 
Oh, yeah. Let's talk about uh, strategy games, like my favorite one, Civilization. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's oh, yeah. So, Civilization, most people would consider the multiplayer to be competitive multiplayer, right? Yeah. But you and I play collaboratively because, because... you can have computer-controlled opponents. Mm -hmm. And the other reason is he doesn't want his ass kicked by me. Yeah. <laughs> She's better at Civilization than I am. And I've been playing them since the very first one. What's the first Civilization you played? Three? Three. I played every single one, but you're better at me than this game. At this game. Yeah. Yeah, because I started out on uh, real-time strategy before I moved to turn-based strategy. That's true. Mm -hmm. so I, I, I played real-time strategy, but I never enjoyed it. I stay away from it. Yeah, I, Age of Empires were my babies. Hmm. The peasant squisher? <laughs> yep. Age of Empires and Warcraft. That's what I played. Those were the only computer games I had until I moved to Toronto. Mm-hmm. So, Civilization. I mostly like playing this game in ways that do not involve combat. I like the diplomacy and the technology. And culture. Yeah, me too. Culture. I, I, I only do uh, combat if it's absolutely necessary. But fortunately, I play that I'm further enough ahead of everybody that I can build one or two space marines and let, Dun and let Gandhi bring in his uh, pikemen and swordmen to rub his face against my... Uh, She's greater. <laughs> Gandhi's a jerk in those games. Huh? I know. He's apparently, the most warlike guy. Yeah, apparently it has something to do with the way his statistics were programmed, and that it it actually bugs if you. And so instead of being passive, because they make because the way the statistics were, he bugged instead of being uh, pacifist, he winds up actually being aggressive because of it. <laughs> yeah, he's he's like unstoppable. He's an evil guy. Uh huh. And then there's and then your favorite Alexander. Oh, he's horrible. Freaking Greeks. Oh, They're for some reason, he aggressive. loves me. He never, he always wants to be my friend. Well, he's always a fair weather friend. He's your friend for the first while, and then over time, as you amass your wealth and your resources and your land, he kind of resents you more and more and more over time. And then he never comes out and, and clobbers you himself. He'll uh, poison your relationships with other people. Mm -hmm. And then he'll, he and one or two other civilizations will wage war on you at the same time. He's a real conniving brat, Alexander. Yes, he is. Stupid horse fucker. <laughs> oh, yeah. Who is it that really hates me? Oh, yeah. The Polyponesians can't stand oh, me. For... Oh, Polynesians? Yeah. Is yeah. that um, Kamehameha? Yeah. He never likes me. And then I remember... Well, he always likes me, but he's a puny and worthless, so he's like a... Mm -hmm. He's like a zip hanging off of me. <laughs> oh, the worst war I ever had was against Napoleon. Mm -hmm. But he sent like two or three units in. I demolished them, and then we were basically at war for like a thousand years. Oh, just because you wouldn't call it off because he's stubborn. Yep. And then I decided I got fed up after a while. Built a couple of units, sent them in, took uh, Leon, or whatever, and then he capitulated and gave me another city. Mm, nice. I love when they give you a city. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about how we play that co-op, shall we? Yep. Be and as we said, we totally cheat too. We don't. Well, we cheat in the sense that uh, we're unfair. Yeah, <laughs> but essentially, due uh, to the way we play, we tend to not engage in combat for the most part. We use diplomacy, culture, and technology, and so uh, for culture, that means all the world wonders. And so, when we play, we we make ourselves one team, and we make the AI individual teams. That's so, right. So, so we, we basically make... have double the resources of anyone else, <laughs> collaborating together. So if we if we uh, if we both choose the same technology to study, 
it's all of my technology research abilities plus all of hers working together. So we basically research everything twice as fast as everyone else. Yeah, and it's and what contribute to that is the science. And so what happens is as we go through, I wind up getting higher and higher science. And what do I do? I usually do culture. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you take care of the book learning, and I take care of the caterwauling. <laughs> and so between the two of us, we have really great resources to uh, conquer everybody else through nonviolent means. Yeah, and so we share our resources, which increases the happiness. And then uh, what's really funny is sometimes is is uh, seeing how many people we can piss off without actually engaging in war. Yeah, either through our borders or through our culture permeating theirs or mm -hmm. uh, religion. Yeah. You're really you're really relentless, aren't you, at sending your uh, missionaries and uh, inquisitors and stuff to other to other uh, civilizations? No, I just make little pockets of uh, missionaries and then I uh, counterbomb uh, people and then I buy tiles instead. Mm, that's right. Yeah, because if I found that if I don't have a def good defensive line, they send their little uh, zits to infect me. <laughs> But yeah, if we're playing together, fourteen, they usually prefer to. They usually prefer the days of your tender, tender flesh. <laughs> but yeah, so we pair up together and uh, we conquer resources that way. But being on a team actually increases the number of turns needed to research different things. So at the outset, we have to collaboratively focus on uh, the same topic. But as we get further into the game, one of us might have uh, fewer turns for certain things, and so. I'll tell I'll tell him to uh, research to start researching one thing while I spend uh, two or three turns on something else and then move over to uh, help him finish researching. This is instead of uh, the research agreement that you would typically make with the AI, which which are at the base of three hundred gold, but the AI, being a cheap bastard it is, often wants other things with it, such as uh, your strategic resources and some more gold because the AI is uh, a terrible money manager. Mm -hmm. Or they run deficits that they just can't get out of. Or they're too busy declaring war on each other to actually have accumulated any wealth. Oh, that's right. So that when we accumulate wealth, we can basically buy their favor. We can buy resources from them or we can uh, influence nation states to either uh, turn against them or to vote with us in the United Nations or whatever. Yeah. So that's always fine. So whenever we feel like walking all over everybody else, we will co-op Civilization Five together. Mm -hmm. We did it in Civ Four as well. I don't really remember it too much. It was some time ago already. Yeah, we did it there, but we mostly remember Civ Five. That and was... did we do it in three? Um, I don't no. think we did. No, we didn't. I don't know whether co-op was well. It must have been possible. I think multiplayer's been around for a long time. Mm -hmm. But uh, I know that one one reason why you didn't want to co-op with me for a while was you take so fucking long <laughs> with every damn turn. You, she does more than me. She will like, whereas I will usually automate my workers. She will control them manually. And still finish behind. And still finish before me. You're right, because I'm like strategizing and I, I really take my time and I try to play the game right and to be efficient. And she takes way, way less time than me and does better than me anyway. <laughs> so I'm doing something wrong. I don't know what. It's usually because you don't automate your workers and you don't make efficient use of your land. Because you need to build farms right next to cities to maximize their growth and then, uh, build, and then uh, build out from there. The farms are what... Uh, give your cities happiness, because when they have food, they grow. That's right. I'm wishing that I had older games on here, but... There's not a lot of co-op older games, yeah. games, unless you look at consoles. Yeah, that's right. No, there, there just weren't a lot of local multiplayer 
cooperative games back in the day. Mm -hmm. I definitely invite everyone to uh, to uh, write in and tell me if I'm overlooking any old mm -hmm. cooperative games where you play collaboratively instead of competitively. All right, what should we talk about next? Yeah, because I mean, there's joys in the fasting, but you played the co-op. You played. Yeah, the you're you're competing against other people to come in first in that game. Mm -hmm. So it is a local multiplayer game, but it's not co-op. Yes, it is. Doomed co-op. I've I've been begging Bianca to play Doom with me. She won't play it. Even though I thought can, it was Fear that you wanted me to play with you. Uh, Fear 1 doesn't have co-op. Only Fear 3 has co-op, and we played that, and that's yep. on our list. But uh, Doom 1, it had a deathmatch where you could fight each other, I believe, with or without monsters on the map. Mm -hmm. But it also had four-player network co-op, which was very, very innovative for its time. It was hard enough getting four people on the same map at the same time, never mind a whole level full of monsters. And you could choose whether... Uh, you damage each other or not with your own shots, which always became hilarious. And just like Battletoads on the NES, uh, one of you will hit the other person by accident, and then you just have, like, the fur flying <laughs> between the two of you trying to get back at each other. And, of course, uh, Battletoads had finite lives, whereas I believe uh, Doom, you could just keep retrying as long, many times as you want. So in mm -hmm. Battletoads, you would always kill each other until you run out of lives and then regret it. Whereas in Doom, you can smash each other all you want and not really lose much progress. Which is good. Sort of like uh, Grand Theft Auto 4 where we would shoot each other in revenge. Yes. So I would love to play Doom with you sometime, but you don't seem to be feeling that game. Nope, not particularly. Oh, what a shame. I suppose it is. Yeah. Yeah, like I said, I couldn't really think of anything that was... Uh... Although we did do Guild Wars. Yeah, we did Guild Wars. That's but a that's cooperative game. Yeah, although that's more of an MMO. Yeah, it's not significantly different from WoW, really, so mm -hmm. I don't think we need to talk too much about it. True, but it had no jump button. It had no jump button. Neither does Doom. Great games have no jump button. <laughs> anyway, I'll stop beating that horse. Uh, it's pretty dead, too. Let's, um... This is probably the most recent game on my list. Why don't we talk about this one? Okay. The Yogg. I mentioned this game once or twice on the podcast. I played this uh, for the first time at... Uh, collaborative video game workspace Bento Miso, made by a guy named Damian Summers. And it's kind of an RPG board game, sort of. It's The interesting thing about this from a multiplayer perspective is you can play this game with up to four people, is it? Or six people? I think it's four people. Yeah, four. You can play all the players by yourself, or you can play them with other people. You can have four people playing one character each. You can have two people playing four, two characters each. Um, yeah, we played it with each of us controlling two characters on alternate turns. That's right. And it really is a co-op game. It sure feels like a competitive game, but in the end, you kind of share your fate with everybody else. Which yes. is sort of neat. Yeah. It's, it's not really defined as co-op or competitive. It's mostly co-op, but not entirely, which is a really fascinating uh, concept. Mm -hmm. So, uh, the Yog. Do you want to describe the Yog? Hmm. You're essentially, uh, it's the last few days before this big monster that they don't really know what it is. They call it the Yog. It's an event that's going to transpire. And you have, and you as a character, have to complete a series of tasks to make sure that you can uh, survive the oncoming uh, apocalypse or whatever it is that's coming. Mm -hmm. And so this means uh, you go about your daily, you go about your daily lives and you have to make decisions that will ultimately make you a better person or those decisions may actually lead to a fate that's worse than what you thought you'd get. But every decision you make results in either a development of skills 
or the, the accumulation of currency or it just or or nothing happens or you actually lose talent because of it yeah like a bunch of randomized events that you can handle one way or another and you never really know whether one way is good or the other way is better mm -hmm. but you just pick one whatever sounds interesting to you and then you deal with the consequences and yeah then you and accumulate points and sometimes an event will happen and if you have the requisite number of points then you succeed otherwise you fail mm -hmm. and something happens exactly so two people could both go to the same you and you can't have two people at the same location on the same turn but two different people could do the same could go to uh the same location have the same event options pop up but have completely different results because uh One's a mage, and they naturally have an inclination for alchemy. Whereas, uh, let's say you have someone who's more of a warrior type, they go to do it, and they ha and they they fail because they don't have the inclination for magic or uh, alchemy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's kind of a cool thing. So I guess the game takes what, like twenty minutes or so to finish a round, mm -hmm. or like to finish the whole game. But because there's so many different things that could possibly happen, there's a lot of different outcomes and a lot of different events that will occur on the way, so it has great replayability. Yep, and the object is to basically be able to have a character who can survive the end event to help rebuild a town. And so you want to uh, make sure that your character survives so that way they can work with the others to survive at the end as well. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, sometimes you might end up wandering or used, or just something happens to you that's completely unexpected, and it's all a result of the choices you've made. Yeah, the endings are really cool. Sometimes they're good, sometimes they're bad, sometimes they're sad. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you live but are but are abandoned by your friends or something, or sometimes you succeed but you alienate everyone. Mm -hmm. A lot of cool outcomes in that game. Very creative one. Yep, definitely a good one to play with uh, anywhere from one to four players. But I think two players is good because you get more because then you get more choice because you get two people in control and just everything. And it's just so different the experience. You can't think black and white. You have to think, hmm, I'm this guy. What would happen if I do this or this? What would what what do I want to happen? Mm -hmm. I played it for the first time with four people, and that was a fun way to play it. Although we would always forget who whose guy was whose. Uh -huh. That was a pre-release version. I think maybe the icons weren't as clear or something. Yeah, I think the icons were are pretty clear in this one. Yeah, I think it got better. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, and it's a local multiplayer game, by the way. There's no netcode or anything, so one person owns the game and invites people over. You could totally play it via Twitch or something. Just by telling the person in control what they should press. Yeah, but it seems that it, it wouldn't be the best Twitch game just because you don't get the interactivity or the satisfaction of moving and picking those options. Yeah, it'll be okay. It'll be tell okay, the, but not tell the other person what to pick. Yeah, but it's not the same as Jawful or anything like that. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, it's not the same as a game where each individual person has control over their own stuff, mm -hmm. direct control. So that's the Yog. Uh, oh, let's talk about this one. Okay. Ooh, Portal 2. Portal 2. This was the first Portal I actually played from beginning to end. I did, I couldn't really get into the first one. I don't know. Eh. I like the first one better. I like Portal 1 better than Portal 2 myself. Just because... I guess because of the story. The puzzles, I guess, are, are better in Portal 2. There's more of a variety. They don't all feel like Portal puzzles to me. Sometimes they're just like environment puzzles that don't necessarily have too much to do with Portals. Though they do use portals in a bit of a way. Yeah, in a bit of a way. Just kind of as a way to aim something, really. Okay. Um, but uh, we have the achievement, having completed every Portal 2 co-op challenge. Yep. Together. Which is great. Mm -hmm. So, 
I guess in Portal 2, you know, you're you're the one guy, and you it's up to you to solve a puzzle, and if you run out of ideas, then you just stand around waiting until you get another idea. Whereas in co-op... You're both thinking, and uh, you're thinking in different ways, because you because you might be on a different side of the glass. You're, for example, when you first start out, we're brought, you can see each other through a pane of glass, but you got to figure out how to get to together so mm -hmm. you might have a different so one person might have access to something above them whereas the other person might have access to something on a wall at their level so uh for example you might uh see that uh you can shoot your wall and the uh and a piece on the wall above where your friend is and uh to get to them so then you have to do that so that way you can proceed but uh at the same time in order to open the door on your friend's side you have to uh press the button first or move a block and have it in place before you can proceed. Yeah, that's right. So, it's, all, so it's about uh, figuring out who has what tool they need to progress and who you need to fling across the room. Yeah. Yeah, usually I guess in single player, most of the problems can be solved with making two holes, whereas in multiplayer and co-op, most of the problems are with four holes or with... Uh, there being switches on either side that are inaccessible to one person, the other person has to do. Probably my favorite puzzle in Portal 2 Co-op was one where there's like a sliding, there's like a puzzle with elevators, mm -hmm. and one person has to use switches to move the elevators up and down, and the other person has to actually go into that maze and is at the mercy of the person throwing the switches. <laughs> if they throw the wrong switch, then they squish the other person. But fortunately, there's uh, you just come back and you're back in the beginning, so you have to restart the puzzle. Yeah, it's there's, forgiving. Yeah, there's no uh, li you you don't have infinite you have infinite lives and infinite tries. Yeah, which is nice. Mm -hmm. And of course, Gladys berates you for being a useless piece of shit if you fail. Yeah, that's right. The fun part is making faces at the camera because you're a robot and you're not supposed oh, yeah. to be handing it up. That's right. There's the taunts and stuff like that. And Gladys uh, tells you to stop acting like a human. That's right. The Perpetual Testing Initiative, I think is what they call it. No, 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 that's something else. That was when they added uh, mods for user levels. Well, so the interface was really neat. The interface did two things that I liked for co-op. Number one, you could uh, either ping a location where you would like look at something and press, I think it was your Q button or something, and then it puts a little target on the screen that the other person can see. So if you want them to look somewhere, then you would tap the button and they would look at where your uh, target was. Mm -hmm. Or you could hold down that button instead of just tapping it, and then you could, instead of putting a bullseye there, you could put an icon there, mm -hmm. and maybe you ha maybe you put a little five-second countdown timer where uh, you both have to press a button at the same time, or maybe you put an icon of a portal somewhere, or I forget what all the icons mm -hmm. are, but you could indicate that you want the other person to do this thing at this location. Or you want them to move to a certain location. Right. Because yeah, that's uh, right. you may, because there is uh, no real, because all your communication was done with gestures. Because you're a robot, and all you get are the uh, robot sounds. That's right. I mean, you could play it with uh, voice chat if you wanted to, but just describing a space, a location in 3D space is easier if you can put an icon somewhere. Mm -hmm. And if like, you're not looking at the icon, then it puts a little arrow in the corner of your screen so that you know which way to turn your camera until you're looking at it. Mm -hmm. So that was clever. And that was one, one of the two uh, UI conventions that I appreciated about Portal 2 Co-op. The other was, I think it was your tab button. You could hold down the tab button, and it would show a first-person camera of what the other person was seeing, and put that in the corner of your screen. Yeah, so if uh, you were that way, if you were trying to collaborate, and you could get a better look at their uh, stuff because you may have been around a corner from them, and you couldn't see what they were seeing. Mm -hmm. 
but if you're sitting beside each other, you can see what the other person sees. But if you're uh, across the room or in different uh, places, it's just an easier way of uh, appreciating what the other person is trying to point at. Mm -hmm. So the challenges were good. It, it got pretty hard, I thought. Mm -hmm. It got a little frustrating sometimes. But we still finished. We still finished it. They had like a whole bunch of um, challenges that came with the game, and then they added some more later mm -hmm. on. And they even included like some video clips and a little bit of like uh, light story, which was neat. So that was a little, tiny bit of inconsequential but unique story that you can only get if you uh, finish the co-op co mm -hmm. mode. So that's kind of neat. Yeah, and your objective was to save Gladys the, from the bird. Yeah, that's right. And it, it was just kind of a rehash of something that you do in the game, in the, in the single-player game. But it was cute anyway. Yeah, the potato bird. You guys saved the potato from the bird. That's right. So that was a that was a good. Uh, it's nice to have a cooperative puzzle game. That's just a something that you don't get too often. And once again, it's a game where you don't have to kill anything. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be violent. Yeah, it's just about problem solving. The only thing is, you got you want you want to play this with somebody who is familiar with Portal Two, has done it, and mm -hmm. understands when you're pointing at something. Oh, you played with your dad. How'd you guess? <laughs> I go ahead and describe <laughs> that situation. Uh, don't get me wrong. I love my dad. I know he plays games, but just getting him. To uh, make a portal on a wall in the first level was excruciatingly difficult. <laughs> and this is given the fact that we didn't have any voice chat and I had to use the 3D space to indicate what I wanted. Oh, right. I seem to remember you occasionally calling him on the phone. Uh, actually, he called me. What uh -huh. am I supposed to do? Uh, <laughs> that's right. That was earlier in his gaming career, though. He's yeah. gone on to become a, a pretty good first-person gamer. Yeah, not too bad. Although he still occasionally points the gun at this guy and everything. Yeah, we were with him in his very first baby steps into video game 3D world, and he would run around staring at the ceiling or staring at the floor and <laughs> shooting himself in the foot. <laughs> yeah, his first game was Half-Life 2, which he actually has finished. Yeah, even I think he even finished the uh, expansions, the episodes. I don't remember, but maybe. I don't but remember. yeah, he did. He did do it, which was amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. It's a long game. It took him like a year. <laughs> but he stuck with it. It might have been more than a year. Yeah. But he stuck with it. <laughs> Good for him. And Hi, Dad. <laughs> but, yeah, we eventually did get through it, but it took uh, a lot more than just the indication, the indicators that uh, we, were, that Brian and I were able to use to communicate with each other. So Yeah, we had, to call our, we had to call each other names, too. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, what were you going to say? That uh, you do have to, if, depending on the person you're playing with, you do have to be a little patient if they haven't... Uh, had a lot of a co-op experience. Mm. But yeah, good game. Definitely fun to play as co-op. But you do need infinite patience, even if not with the person you're playing with, but with the level. Because the last two levels were particularly difficult and actually meant in a touch, and uh, requiring a touch of thought before you could uh, figure out how to progress. Because they were multi-step puzzles at different stages. Uh, I don't even remember. It was a long time ago that we played it. Yeah, it was, okay, I'm going to make these holes. I'm going to launch you. You're going to shoot these mm. two things. Mm -hmm. And you're going to go through, and then I'm going to jump. I'm, now you're going to make those holes where I just had mine, and then I'm going to I'm gonna project myself across the room and make the holes that you made. That's right. I, I think I remember having played the single player with the developer commentary that they tried very hard to design puzzles that didn't really require reflexes, but... My opinion, I what of what I remember of the co-op stuff was that there was more reflex-dependent stuff in co-op, where you would fling one person, 
around and that person would have to do something while flying sometimes. Yeah. Or to catch something flying. Mm-hmm. Uh, so many attempts trying to catch that one damn cube. The companion cube. And but and, and uh, trying to catch it, sometimes uh, you thought you caught it, but the other person didn't hear you, didn't know that you caught it, and they pressed the button again. The cube would dissolve, and you oh, had, to, that's right. had to re-catch your companion cube. Yeah, that's right. You, you should give Portal 1 another chance. I'll think about it. I guess I could. I, but I still have to finish Old Blood. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Well, Portal 1, I like GLaDOS a lot better than Portal 1. Portal 2 was very funny, but I don't think any of the computers or robots acted like computers or robots. They acted like people. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Portal 1, it, GLaDOS acts like a computer. And that's what's so funny and charming about it. That she's so, she's so heartless and she's kind of wrestling with the fact almost that there was like some kind of, there was a human behind her inception. And there's this tiny little trickle of that. Whereas in Portal 2, she's like totally a human. And, and I, why? I like well, what do you expect? You put her in a potato. Right. But I, I didn't like that about Portal 2. It's, it's not as nerdy. And it's still nerdy, but it's not as nerdy. Space. It's, oh, the cores. Yeah, yeah. Space, space, space. They had those cores, the personality cores or whatever. Those are something from the first game. Space, 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 space. And they were really funny space. in the first one. I'm in space. Anyway, next game. <laughs> space. <laughs> what do you want to talk about next? I don't know. Pick something. We have... Ooh. Okay. Couldn't resist this one, and uh, once again, call out to Dad on this one. <laughs> mm -hmm. This is uh, Call of Duty World at War. Brian and I have played this extensively locally co-op. Uh, uh, co this is a pretty easy game to set up co-op, and we do usually. It, usually, we had some trouble when uh, he started using Windows 10 beta, and I was still on Windows oh, 8. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I ran into some issue with the netcode in the game. I, I think in the end it was related to me having virtual machines like VMware installed on my computer because when you install VMware, it makes these virtual network adapters, mm -hmm. and I think the game was looking at the virtual network adapters instead of the real one because it kept saying that it couldn't find the other session. Yeah, and now that and then once we resolved that, we were able to play, and we uh, and uh, unfortunately not all the camp not all the uh, campaign segments appear because some of them are strictly single player and I know that there is one that I really like where you're in where you have to do an airplane rescue mission uh, okay. when you're in the Pacific and you uh, you're shooting down all the other when you're shooting down the zeros uh, yeah, yeah. and then you have to pull the uh, five marines out of the water I actually successfully pulled out five of them oh I don't remember that at all yeah actually. you usually if you're unlucky you can only get three but if you're really good and fast you can get all mm. five Fortunately, it's one of those things that even if you fail, you don't ultimately fail your core objectives. Okay. But so. Yeah. So this is a this is a game where the it, it's very rare for a, a, a first person shooter to have a co op mode. Yeah. This one, it's really it's a single player story. It's probably like eighty or ninety percent of the single player story. You can also play co op multiplayer with another person. Yeah. Which I, is really cool. Yeah, and it makes sense since you're already with your uh, platoon. And you're going through uh, either the uh, the harsh jungles of the South Pacific in pursuit of the Japanese army, or you're uh, tromping across uh, Eastern Europe with Sergeant Reznov. Crap, no. Crap, no. <laughs> but then, uh, so what's nice is you don't feel that uh, anything is lost by playing co-op. Co in fact, it feels like uh, you're still playing the base game because there's no change in it. You both shoot. You both have the same objective, and it feels actually. 
a lot nicer because you feel like you're in more of you got more camaraderie when you're playing co-op. Unless you're me, because then I uh, jump in front of I, I run in front of uh, her and I start jumping up and down. Ah, I hate ass. you. <laughs> I'm, I'm in a war, boing 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 boing. I'm a soldier, boing boing. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I see uh, you on my screen. We have all these like gritty, grizzled uh, soldiers that are like world weary and uh, pummeled and going deaf from all the the rocket fire and stuff. And then I have one soldier named Feeny Bird. <laughs> oh, there goes little Feeny Bird. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, so us playing together isn't too bad. We usually don't die too terribly. And playing with my dad. That was fun. I ha Although I do have to, in my rep in my collection of arsenal, I do need to keep a spatula with me so I can go back and scrape up his remains. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh, yeah, so this, um, they in this game, they call it competitive co-op. So it's it's totally a co-op campaign. However, you score points for shooting people, and, like, if you kill a bunch of people in rapid succession, then you get a multiplier that gives you mm -hmm. exponentially more points. Yeah, I or, think you can actually turn that off if you want. Oh, really? Yeah, you can turn it off and just make it pure co-op. Oh, well, we should do that. Okay, we can do that. We should do that. So that's kind of a neat thing where you you both have the objective of trying to keep each other alive and stuff, but you're sort of racing to kill people the fastest. Mm -hmm. So it adds a little bit of ur extra urgency to it. Yeah. So it's a pretty good game. Uh, in For single player, I kind of hated the game. It was, a, it was made by Treyarch as opposed to Infinity Ward. And... I thought that the game wasn't quite as polished and had a very different feel from the other Call of Duty games. And it was like, I don't know, I've, I've described like the two different tones of a, of a first-person shooter. You can have like the tally-ho, heroic kind of uh, uh, game where it's like good versus evil. And then there's like the super gritty motherfucker, I'll kill all every last one of you, I'll get revenge for my fallen comrades kind of a tone, which is a very like negative tone. So I mean, it's like it's it's a game it's a game genre where you kill a bazillion people and it's a war. And I mean, why should that be pleasant? But the earlier Call of Duty games were much more about the camaraderie of uh, of uh, like-minded people trying to overcome odds together. Whereas mm -hmm. the Treyarch games, I find overwhelmingly the story is much grittier and darker and more spiteful and hateful. Plus, it's one of those friggin' um. World War II games with electric guitars in the soundtrack, and that is such a pet peeve for me. That pisses me off so much. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, I'm surprised that uh, that pisses you off. Oh yeah, what was it? Which Black Ops was it? Oh yeah, the first one. You uh, actually, if in a couple of the missions, you get they actually have uh, '60s music playing instead of electric guitars. Oh, that's right. Oh yes, the 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 Vietnam ones. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Very very cliche. Mm -hmm. But there was, oh, this was the only Call of Duty game to have uh, let you play the campaign in co-op, which is too bad, because, I mean, we both play the Call of Duty games. We both yeah, like this, the single player anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this was a good one, and I still want my dad to come back and play with me. In fact, he quit one minute before the friggin' end of the campaign. I'm like, there's like, ten, there's like maybe six guys left to shoot. If he just sat there and let me shoot them, I could have taken them to the end and let him be the flag carrier take the flag out, knock the German flag down, and put up the Soviet flag. Mm -hmm. But no, he quit. Five guys before the end. It's like, dude, it's 30 seconds left. Oh, that sucks. I know. And I even had to dumb down the difficulty because I put it on regular thinking it would be like when Brian and I play where we need it to be on, where we need it to be somewhat a little more difficult than we're used to because there's two of us shooting and we're both pretty good. Especially when I get my sniper rifle. I'm great with my sniper rifle. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, you, you tend to play more conservatively and attack from from a distance, mm -hmm. whereas I tend to kind of figure out the artificial intelligence and try to exploit it. And so I find that often you can just run into a huge group of people. This is something that's possible with the newer Call of Duty games where you don't have a health pool. You just have, like, regenerating health. Mm -hmm. So I find that I can, like, run into a huge group of people, and they shoot me like crazy, but I shoot them just a little bit faster, and I'm on the brink of death, but then I kind of, like, clutch my sides for five seconds, and then I'm <laughs> fit as a fiddle again. Mm -hmm. So that I try to kind of push things like that usually. Yeah. Whereas you play like more smart and tactical. I, I usually get like a close range weapon and I run up and yeah. kill a bunch of people and take a whole bunch of damage and lose a couple of limbs but <laughs> then I'm all better five seconds later. Yeah and then you can or you can play like my dad where you run in and you take grenades to the face. Oh play like your dad where you run into the middle the, the middle of a huge room not behind cover then you look down your scope and wonder what killed you. <laughs> And then I have to come in, carefully sit behind uh, some uh, crates and uh, revive you with my little tiny uh, needle. Yeah, right. Then you have his corpse in the middle of this room full <laughs> of enemies. You sort of have to belly crawl into the middle of the room, hoping that nobody will notice you and <laughs> revive him. So um, we have another Call of Duty game on here. Yep. We'll speak to briefly. Yep. Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2. Yeah, so whereas World at, World at War by Treyarch was the only of the Call of Duty games that allowed you to play the single-player campaign in co-op, uh, Modern Warfare 2, which was by Infinity Ward, had uh, little objectives, little co-op objectives, a series of them. I had like a good 30 or so of them, didn't it? Yeah, and uh, you got, and depending on how well you did and what difficulty you played at, you got stars which let you progress. So we, we primarily played within the first two star sets because those had the uh, best of the uh, co-op missions. Yeah, sometimes they got really punishing and we just didn't find them fun. Mm -hmm. Whereas these ones were a little bit more interesting because there are two of our favorites used helicopters. So one of us would uh, clear the way and then the second one would go in and just mop up the remains. Yeah, so I like this helicopter mission. This is one where one of you is on foot and the other person is in like a hovering Apache helicopter or whatever and... Uh, with a side-mounted gun, isn't it? And uh, uh, One's a side-mounted gun, and one uses an infrared uh, view. Oh, that's right. That's right. So let's talk about the, the side-mounted one, oh, gun yeah. one, because I think that's the coolest one. Yeah, that's fun. So it's just a short objective where you have to get your, your guy from the beginning of the area to the end. Mm -hmm. So there's like a whole bunch of enemies. And so one of you is down in the trenches. Well, it's like a residential area. So one of you is like on the streets of this residential area, mopping up enemies, uh... Uh, like face to face, and the other person is in a helicopter that's giving like close air support or close ground support. I don't know what you call that, um, and just covering the other person. Um, th and that person has a bit of advantage, um, so you can tell the uh, whoever's in the air can tell the person on the ground what to expect, how many people are coming around the corner, mm -hmm. and wherever possible, that person uses like their Vulcan cannon or whatever the, the minigun to uh, mop up bad guys before uh, they are face to face with the guy mm -hmm. on the ground. Yeah, unfortunately, you also have to be careful because there's a lot of cars in the area, and I think I might have blown him up a couple of times after shooting the car. Yeah, that's kind of a neat thing where the, the the main source of cover for the person on the ground is to hide behind cars, but cars are kind of combustible, so if they take too much damage, they explode. So you have to make sure that the enemies aren't shooting the cars too much, and mm -hmm. the person in the helicopter has to take care not to shoot the cars by accident. Exactly. That's pretty fun, and... Uh, Getting to and uh, you have to uh, be mindful of uh, when you're really close by because you can if you're not careful you can easily shoot each the other guy on the ground. Yeah, yeah, you have to watch out for friendly fire. Mm -hmm. 
So that's a cool one. And there are some areas where you go into an alleyway that's too narrow for the helicopter to see, and so the guy on the ground is on his own. And there's some areas where there's just humongous waves of enemies that are fun for the guy in the helicopter to just mow down one after the other. Yeah, the ones that they're... It's, in fact, there's this one of one succession of three transport trucks that I can just go boom, 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 and blow them all up, and I can, and then you see the, the, uh, the enemy uh, military just explode out of this mm -hmm. vehicle. Yeah, so that's a fun one. Mm -hmm. So there's a bunch of challenges like that. Some of them are about uh, frontal assaults. Some of them are just about sneaking... And some are uh, just are, uh, turret missions where you hold down a uh, point. Yeah, that's right. I kind of like those ones. I like when we both have we both have sniper rifles and have to kill a bunch of guys before they get to us. So it's, uh, it's fun to have a little bit of... Uh, it's kind of like playing an arcade game, really. Yeah. It's fun to have these little mini challenges. I wish that we could play the single-player campaign together and to kind of progress through a story together. Mm -hmm. That would be fun. It would be a lot of fun. Oh, I don't know how we didn't mention Borderlands on our... Probably because it wasn't one of my favorites. Yeah, that's too bad. Yeah. We Borderlands tried. is basically Diablo with guns. First person Diablo with guns. I tried to get you to play it. I tried to get you to buy it a million times and you said no. I think it was on the Humble Bundle or something where you relented and we bought you the whole pack and then we played together for like a good three or four hours and then you just, in like one session, and then you just never wanted to play it again. Mm -hmm. And I can understand that. That's okay. Mm -hmm. We also played uh, Left 4 Dead too. Okay, now let's talk about that. Yeah. I love that game. Walking back into the cornfield. <laughs> Do we play Left 4 Dead one together, or did you not get into no, it until number two? No, I didn't get into that one. I just got. I just used the second one. Okay. I didn't really play any of the expansions. I did the uh, basic game, the basic one that came with the original was Left 4 Dead two. Okay. Yeah, so Left 4 Dead two is kind of unique, I guess, because it's really a co-op only game. Mm -hmm. It's the kind of game. It's a multiplayer only game. And there's no competitive stuff in that game. There's no PvP, which is kind of nice. You can have it. You can have it so that uh, you you can damage other people with your fire, but that's optional. Yeah, and why would you want to do that when you already have zombies nibbling at you? I don't know. Some people like the challenge. More realistic, I guess. Mm -hmm. So and, that's. Oh uh, yeah, and how many times have I shot you when we do that? Plenty. <laughs> we shot each other plenty. Yeah. So it's a really good game. It's Valve with. First-person shooter and environmental storytelling, which is something that they really excel at. Mm -hmm. It's really good. It's great enemies. It's great protagonists who have funny funny things to say. They're fun people to spend time with. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's although the maps are static and the same every time you play, they have something called the virtual director or the AI director or something, which uh, kind of portions out enemies in uh, different ways. So that way you can you have like pockets of uh, just an an you an easy uh, amount of silence where you where there's nothing coming but you can still hear like these whistles and you're like you you're like constantly looking over your shoulder thinking that there's something coming out of the uh, woodworks. Yeah. And then there and then it's all and often this ominous is followed up by the sound the distant sound of crying. Oh the witch! I hate the witch so much. Oh yeah, she's spooky. Yeah, and of course either the uh, AI or some really dumb player who's never done this before, who runs up and just shoots her, and then really gets knocked on his ass. Mm-hmm. That's part of the fun, too. That's actually a game that I like playing single-player, too. You can play a single-player with just AI bots who are extremely stupid. <laughs> but I don't always feel sociable enough to want to play that with other people. Mm-hmm. So. And it's another game we played with my dad. Briefly. <laughs> it was too fast-paced for him. Yeah. I, I, that's a fair criticism. 
about it the is game. fast paced. Because you don't set the pace in that game. Whereas in regular first person shooters, you can clear a room and then just kind of catch your breath. But in Left 4 Dead, because of that AI director, yeah. if not enough is happening, then it will send people after you. And if you've had a whole bunch of fighting recently, then maybe it gives you a breather, but never for long. Yeah. It really looks more, it really does remind me of The Walking Dead. Yeah, very much so. Mm-hmm. It came out before, too. But boy, am I tired of zombies. Yeah. There's zombies and everything. I can't wait for the zombie fad to be over. Yeah, so you're tired So you're tired of White Walkers yet? <laughs> I haven't even watched that shit or read that shit. You should. It's pretty good. It's not that bad. Yeah, whatever. What, you don't want to nerd it up at dinner? No. <laughs> Bianca, my brother-in-law, are always yapping on and on and on about friggin' Walking Dead and... Uh, Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones. I can't get embroiled in another long series. I just don't care. It's only five seasons. It's too long. It's going into season six. I don't care. Ooh, season seven of Walking Dead's out soon. Yay. Yeah, you don't care. September, actually. Don't care. I know you don't care, but maybe some of your listeners uh, care. Hey, listeners, I don't care. <laughs> yeah, well, don't listen to him. He doesn't. You don't know nothing, shit about nothing. Yeah. Uh-huh. All right, we got one game left on our thing, don't we? Okay, which one? Oh, we have two games left. One of them. Well, we can talk briefly about Lego Lord of the Rings. Yeah, just I've. It's um. We barely played it. True, but it was another co-op one. I think my problem with that one was trying to use a controller instead of my keyboard. Because I'm not particularly good with my with my controller unless it's just for straight up combat like Street Fighter or Mortal Kombat or Mario games. Oh, okay. I mean, it is a pretty standard console style of run around and punch things kind yeah. of game. But they're cute. But I've never been particularly handy with the controller. Pardon me, unless it's Tetris. Okay. Yeah, that's fair enough. Mm-hmm. A lot of PC gamers uh, uh, claim that. Yeah. Are, are Although that one. I think the other problem with that one as a co-op was the split screen. Oh, the when we were together. Yeah, that is kind of weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. So, like, if you're... The the Lego whatever games, Lego Star Wars, Lego Lord of the Rings, Lego Batman. I haven't played that one, but they're kind of drop-in, drop-out multiplayer, which is neat. I think in those games, even if you played single-player, there's usually one or two other characters around that you can switch between. But if you're playing them co-op, then uh, the other person can just press a button and kind of take control of one of them right off the bat. Um, if you're on the, if you're like standing next to each other, then it just puts you both on the screen at the same time. But if you get separated from each other, it splits the screen, uh, kind of unpredictably. And like yeah. if you, if one person's in the middle and the other person runs up, then it will split the screen kind of top bottom. But if one person is like in the bottom left and the other person runs to the top right, then it kind of splits the screen diagonally. And if you run around the other person, then the split screen kind of changes perspective. And, like, uh, if you run down, then the split screen will kind of go downward. Yeah. So it's a little disorienting. But sometimes However, you forget who you are. Yeah. However, when you played the Harry Potter, when it, it, it zoomed in and out. So if you if you moved up, so it's the camera zoomed out. So you oh, really? See, yeah. So you're still that. on the same screen. Oh, I don't remember that. Yeah, I remember this. That one was a little better. That's what I was expecting with this Lego one. So I'm sure that if we gave it another chance, I would, A, use my keyboard, and uh, hmm. I wonder if there would be another setting for that. But that would be something to consider. Oh, well, we'll check it out. Because mm-hmm. I have years 1 to 5 or 1 to 7 or something for that. Oh, well, I'll play this with you. Mm-hmm. We played the first one, uh, Philosopher's Stone. Oh, I hardly remember. Oh, no, the Sorcerer's Stone. What's it called now? Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Philosopher, That's right. Yeah, it was originally called Philosopher's Stone in England. Then when it came out in... America, they called it the Sorcerer's Stone because Americans are too dumb to know what a philosopher is, but then they changed it back to philosopher. 
Yeah. Because the when I when I studied the first book for children's literature class, uh, the copy that I owned was called the Sorcerer's Stone, and I didn't know why. It was my teacher that uh, explained that to me. That was pretty interesting. Yep. And when I got my first copy, it was because uh, an, a, my aunt Stella, late aunt Stella, had uh, ordered a couple of these books from a book club and turned out not to like them. And I had been hearing my a good friend of mine uh, talking about them and wouldn't shut up about how great these books were. So I find like, okay, fine, I'll just read them. So I got so I asked her if I could have the two books, and she gave them to me. Hmm. Best decision ever made. I read the entire series, and I've read, I don't know how many times I've read through those, but I love those books so much. Hmm. So the game, I was that's what I was hoping for, that the game would be uh, as good as the books. So maybe I should, I should go back to that. But that was a good uh, co-op version of a Lego game because the uh, screen zoomed out rather than splitting stupidly. So you could still see both people on the screen. It's just that you went from being uh, close up to being a little further out. But... At least you could see both each other, and it was easy to catch back up. Mm -hmm. Alright, but basically all the Lego games are exactly the same. And yeah, they're basically the same, but they're cutesy-poo, so it's kind of fun, just for a different uh, graphic look. So it's not, so uh, it's more of simple polygons, which means you can usually crank the details. Yeah. And your particles are uh, just Lego pieces bursting into a million little pieces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think by far the best thing about the Lego games is that they take they take a story that we're familiar with from a movie or whatever and they express the story non-verbally so mm -hmm. that all there are, are like little intonations and grunts and stuff like that and, and then they kind of ham it up a little bit to make things a little bit comical and it's genuinely really funny and sweet. I love the storytelling in those games although I find the gameplay just kind of too, I don't know, it's just like too plain vanilla running around and smashing stuff to yeah. hold my interest for long. But I'm sure they're great for younger kids and mm -hmm. for parents to play with kids, I bet. Mm -hmm. And uh, last but not least that we played together, and we got pretty far in it, was uh, Fear 3. It, and uh, it actually is a touch similar to Portal, when that you sometimes aren't in the same room, but you have to but you have to uh, work cooperatively to open the door. So like one of you is uh, in this one uh, hallway, and the other person's in this uh, room, and you have to go figure out where the uh, switch is to allow you to both get through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Fear 3. This was not at all a game that I expected to get any enjoyment from whatsoever. I absolutely love Fear 1, and I've talked about that many times on the podcast. I've been begging Bianca to play Fear 1. I think As I'd, you can see, my list of games to play keeps growing. I, <laughs> I think I may have played and completed Fear 1 twice this year so far. I play it like every year. I love that game to death. That's probably the best first-person shooter there is. Yeah, you play it every year, and you play sure to play on every computer you ever get. Yeah, that's right. Every mm -hmm. time I upgrade, I'm that much more impressed with how much smoother it looks. Um, so Fear Two was a piece of shit. I got. I don't think I've ever gotten more than twenty minutes into it, but it's real garbage, and I don't care about it whatsoever. Fear Three is kind of a piece of shit, and I don't think it's very worthwhile to play in single player. But it's another first-person shooter that you can play the the, the, the full campaign in co-op. Yeah, that was actually quite nice because it was actually a proper campaign to play co-op. Yeah. Which is, unfortunately, they don't have it for any of the Call of Duties, which would have been nice for a World War II Call of Duty because then... For any of them. Mm -hmm. I'd, I'd welcome any setting. I love, I love co-op story games. They're pretty rare. Yeah. I think just... As a good co-op for that stuff would have been World War Two because there was more there was more emphasis on uh, teamwork and camaraderie than the later ones, which were more like small tactical squads and uh, mm, maybe right. little end of the uh, small and the uh, little uh, 
assassination groups and the uh, black operations. Okay. Well, what can you tell our listeners about the story of Fear 3? Uh, exactly. <laughs> well, actually, you're some sort of psychopath who's rescued by his equally uh, psychopathic brother, and you're on a rampage to kill a bunch of other people. That's a very and, good synopsis. And um, I believe that the player I played had, like, some sort of uh, telepathic powers that I could make things explode with, or I could, or I had, wasn't no, I had me? magic powers. Wasn't that me? One of us had magic powers. I was the magic guy. You were the plain Jane guy. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of neat. It's like an asymmetric co-op game where uh, both players have first-person shooter mechanics, but one guy is the regular Rambo kind of gun-toting jerk, <laughs> jerk guy who shoots everyone. Yay. The other guy is, he's like some undead magic kind of guy who like shoots people with powers out of his hand, and instead of ammunition... It's like it heats up, so you, you can't shoot too much at any one go before you have to let it cool off, cool off again. And he also has, I think, the power to possess people, where you can, if there's like a big group of enemies, you can possess one of them and surprise everyone by shooting everyone until... Oh, you, I remember this. That was cool. Yeah, until you get killed, and then you just return to your regular body. And I, your guy had other powers, too. I forget if it was telekinesis or something like that. I just don't really remember. But there, it, just like you said, similar to Portal 2, there are some opportunities where one person has to use their abilities to open the way for the other player to use their abilities. Yeah, and I know that at one point you do that the uh, that you have to, the guy who can possess other people has to uh, possess one of the guards who's in another room in order to open it in a new. And then while you're and then while the guards being possessed, you have the uh, second guy has to go in to actually get all the stuff while he or his whether whether while the, while the uh, guy is stationary doing this uh, mind control. Yeah. So it really is cooperative in that, that you do have to occasionally uh, engage the old, uh, here's a wall, you step up onto my hand and I'll give you a boost and then you uh, help me up once you're over the wall. Yeah. So I don't think this game has really any worthwhile value if you're going to play it single player, it, very little if any. Mm -hmm. But play it co-op. It's, it's an above average good co-op game with really cool, unique, maybe not unique, but at least well implemented co-op challenges. Yeah. That's fear three. All right, man. We're at the three-hour mark. Wow, that was three hours. I know that went by quickly. It's a pleasure to talk to you, baby. Mm -hmm. It was nice to talk to you. No, and I it's a pleasure guess. to have everybody listening. Would you like to do the honors of uh, reading out the uh, contact information? Okay. Hey guys, if you uh, want to get in touch with Square Waves FM, you can find us on the web at squarefm.demodulated.com. The email is squarefm at demodulated.com. Or on Twitter, we're at Square Waves FM. Couldn't have done it better myself. Thanks, <laughs> darling. You're very welcome. All right, so um, no doubt we have overlooked some co-op games uh, of note, if, uh, and especially if you can think of any older co-op games that we've overlooked. Yeah. We'd love to hear it. Please get in contact with us with those various means that uh, my lovely better half uh, articulated so eloquently. Yeah. I would have mentioned Warcraft and Age of Empires, but uh, Brian's never played those. Was so. it co-op, though? Um, you could do co-op the same way we did Civ co-op. Mm. I'll have to take a look at that. All right. But otherwise, we thank you very, very much for listening. Do you want to tell people how to get in contact with you? Do you have anything to pitch? Um, if you want to get in contact with me, I'm uh, on Twitter. So I'm at birds underscore tweeting. <laughs> I'll put it in the show notes so you don't have to spell it out. Thanks. Okay, sure. And, oh, what a special episode it was to get a letter from Chris. That's really awesome. I can't wait to hear from him again, and I know that the same will be true of you all. We all wish him well. Goodbye.
All right, we love you to pieces. Thank you very, very much for tuning in to episode number 28, and uh, we'll talk to you same time next week. Yeah. Bye, everyone. Bye. Did you go?